Hey, you want to hear about aliens? Hello, Earthlings. Welcome to the Fantasy Podcast. This is where we look at science fiction and fantasy books you'll probably never read. Whether it's too old, too weird, or you already saw the movie, we cover it all. This is the classics episode, so we'll be talking about a famous or influential piece of writing. I'm your host, Erica Brickley. You can find my library on Instagram at Erica Brickley, spelled E-R-I-K-A-B-R-I-C-K-L-E-Y, and comment on which books you'd like to hear about. Just remember that when you return from this fictitious romp, you should show as much love to Earth as we do to Mars. It may be the only planet we ever get. And show as much compassion for animals as we do for aliens. They may be the only other complex life we'll get to meet. Subscribe for more escapism. Today is a very exciting day. While deciding what counts as a classic science fiction or fantasy story, I decided that we should aim for some good old-fashioned aliens. And what better place to learn about aliens than Barlow's Guide to Extraterrestrials, subtitled Great Aliens from Science Fiction Literature. Before I even get into the episode, I want to tell you about this book because I vividly remember the day I stumbled across it. To start with, I, much like Captain Kirk, grew up in a small town in rural Iowa. That small town just so happened to be Grinnell, a city that has been mentioned in books by both Ray Bradbury and Robert A. Heinlein since they enjoyed driving through it. For the longest time, we had a really beautiful library downtown that sort of looks like a sandcastle, standing right next door to the post office that looks like a Greek temple. (laughs) The problem with the library was that it wasn't big enough for a growing town of readers, and they constantly had to cycle out unloved books in favor of new ones. Actually, all libraries do this regardless of their size, but whatever. So, every fall, there would be a massive book sale in the United Church of Christ uh, basement next door. It was a big, long room with a stage on one end uh, that they used for bell concerts and other church functions. Uh, But for this one day a year, the whole place was filled with folding tables covered in books, stacks, or boxes, stacks, and rows of books sorted by genre. By the age of 13 or so, I had a set routine. I walked through the aisles, past adults and kids, pretending I might be interested in fiction or cookbooks, but my real objective was the table in the back corner. Though not very big compared to the others, uh, there would be a round card table labeled sci-fi and fantasy. Usually there would be books laid out on top as well as underneath, their spines pointing at the ceiling of the dim room, propped up by old metal bookends. And I would proceed to look at every single one of them. Keep in mind that by now I had discovered Anne McCaffrey's Dragonflight and there was no looking back. That's a story for another day. After devouring every paperback, hardback, and dust jacket on that table, I made my final decisions. If I waited until about 2 o'clock, I think, I could get a whole box of books for like a dollar. That meant I didn't have to discriminate very much about who got to come home with me. (laughs) Still, a box is not a suitcase, and I had to be reasonable. On this particular day, there uh, was some time to kill before the one dollar bell sounded. Looking back, I feel kind of bad that my purchases were usually so small since that money went to the library, but I think I'm more than made up for it these days. (laughs) So what to do until the bell tolled? Uh, The answer was always to wander around with my box looking into other sections. I made some odd choices over the years by doing this, picking out books that had interesting covers, but boring content. (laughs) The one I really remember is Supernature by Lyle Watson which had the most amazing cover, a green orchid bursting out of a chicken egg. 
It didn't matter that I found it in the science section. I took it home. My parents later pointed out that this might be dense reading material for a preteen, but I ignored them until I finally ended up putting it in the Goodwill donation box. <laughs> the other tables at the back of the long room held the children's books. Though I had outgrown them, I sometimes looked through the picture books for nostalgia reads or interesting art. Uh, today I wasn't really that interested since there were a lot of kids and their parents looking through and having story time to keep everyone fairly quiet while the rest of the shoppers were pondering their favorite genres. I simply looked the table over as I walked by. As I did so, something caught my eye and I stopped, backpedaled, and had another look, trying to be as casual as possible with strangers everywhere. <laughs> you will be shocked to learn I didn't know all 10,000 people in my hometown. Sitting on the edge of a table was what looked like a picture book, but not quite. It was tall, not very thick, and blue with various labeled illustrations on the front. Really good illustrations. With one glance, I had an inkling of what it might be, and my pulse sped up. Were those pictures of aliens on the cover? Suddenly terrified, someone else would snatch it before I could be sure. I grabbed the book and walked away to a less busy corner. No one had been standing near the book. To this day, I don't know if it had been on the sci-fi table, picked up by someone, and forgotten at the kids' table, or if the book sale volunteers had thought it was a kids' book. But as soon as I had it in my hands, I did not care. Looking again, I thought, yes, yes, those are pictures of aliens, and they each have a name listed under their feet. I then read the title carefully, Barlow's Guide to Extraterrestrials, Great Aliens from Science Fiction Literature. My heart was still beating with excitement. I was getting more and more thrilled. <laughs> Not only were these pictures of aliens, they were ones that actually existed outside of the artist's mind. They were out there somewhere in the books. Just to be absolutely sure I was correct about what I had in my hands, like a Pokedex of aliens, I flipped through the pages ever so briefly, then I snapped the book shut. Such a discovery must be savored. All the boxes of books in this room meant less to me than the one I held in my hands. The bell rang, I paid for my box, and I got home with my treasure as soon as I could. I wanted nothing more than to read Barlow's guide from front to back, uninterrupted. Fortunately, it was the weekend, so I was able to do exactly that. And I still have that very same book on my shelf to this day, along with its companion, Barlow's Guide to Fantasy. For those who have never encountered these books before, I'll give you a rundown. The aliens in the first guide are all from science fiction books that Wayne B Douglas Barlow did not write. <laughs> He's actually a well-known artist who has done many book covers and currently has a healthy social media following along with other published works. You can find him at Wayne Barlow underscore the darkness. <laughs> His art has a particularly beautiful style that rides the line between realistic and dreamlike, using a lot of textures and vibrant colors and a solid understanding of musculature. And I absolutely love it. He's up there with Michael Whalen for producing incredible works and book covers. The idea behind the guide was to illustrate creatures that Barlow felt hadn't been artistically portrayed as well as they could be, or at all. According to his Instagram, the very first one he painted was the Thrint, a being from Larry Niven's world of Tavs. That came as a surprise to me, since I much prefer the singing trees and flying stingrays. So I asked him why he st uh, started with that one. His response was, Not sure anymore. I was going through a Niven phase at the time, and maybe it was the scaliness. <laughs> with a double question mark and dinosaur emojis. 
As a side note, I've made two plushy dolls based on paintings from this book. You can scroll way back through my Instagram if you're interested in seeing them. Mr. Barlow told me he liked the Syrian. Anyway, back when I stumbled across the guide, I was still finding out about the wide world of science fiction literature. I was born in the 90s, so learning to use the internet and get even a flip phone took a little bit longer. Typing something into Google or Yahoo or Jeeves didn't guarantee you'd get the results you wanted, whether or not you knew what you were looking for. I didn't know that Anne McCaffrey was part of a wealth of incredible writers with a style and a perspective I would love. I just knew her work excited me. Though none of her dragons are illustrated in the guide, it was in the same vein and gave me a reference point as I continued exploring library shelves. I didn't know Ursula Le Guin, James White, Jack L. Chalker, Frank Herbert, Paul Anderson, Arthur C. Clarke, Pierce Anthony, or any of the others, including today's author. We'll get to them in a minute. I only vaguely knew about H.P. Lovecraft, and my dad was a huge fan of the movie The Thing, based on John W. Campbell's Who Goes There, though I was too much of a scaredy-cat to read it, and too young to watch it. Really, I was too young for all of <laughs> all of these books, except that I found them a little bit early, or at least found Dragonflight early, and then the guide. The only alien I actually knew that was featured in the guide was the Ixchel from A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Langle. To be fair, that book is aimed at teenagers while the rest of the featured creatures are more for adults. And I hadn't read it since I was about 10 years old, so the image I had of the gray tentacled Ixchel was so different from what Barlow had drawn that it shook me to my core. In a good way. It's one of my favorite depictions in the book, actually. After a while, I started to think about collecting the books that have aliens included in Barlow's guide. I could have a whole shelf devoted to it. Unfortunately, two factors got in my way. One, space, or lack thereof, and two, choice. By collecting so many vintage paperbacks, I learned that there are often multiple covers available for a single novel, and I didn't know how to choose. (laughs) Really, that became more of an excuse since the lack of space on the shelf problem loomed large. Out of all the wonderful aliens I that there are to pick from, I ended up choosing a story I read largely because of Barlow's Guide, and that is The Voyage of the Space Beagle by A.E. Van Vogt. It's a series of related stories written during the 30s and 40s that were compiled into a novel in 1950. My copy is included in a book called Triad, published by Simon & Schuster sometime during the 50s. It also includes The World of Null A and Slan. Uh, While the creatures from Space Beagle are probably more well-known as iconic creatures, I think Slan and Null A might be more famous novels. We'll talk more about Van Vogt's famous aliens after the summary. My weakness as a sci-fi lover is that I don't really enjoy reading short stories, though I can't say that I'm talented at sticking with a super long narrative either. For this reason, I almost never read anthologies or magazines, even if those things contain incredible imagination and prose. I just struggle to pick up and start losing steam after just a couple stories. When I picked up this copy of Van Vogt's work at a book sale and decided to read Space Beagle, I did so without knowing it was originally a set of short stories, and I'm fine with that. (laughs) They all feature the same spaceship with the same main character, so it doesn't really matter. In that way, they resemble James White's Sector General novels, some of my very favorites for aliens and pacifist content, since there is mostly one main character in one main setting, dealing with situations that pop up. And I really enjoyed The Voyage of the Space Beagle. I love anything with a compelling plot and good aliens. 
even more than I love any individual character. You can tear me apart in the comments for saying so. I'll let you know I'm a little nervous about tackling this summary because short stories are written to be tight and succinct uh, and almost summarize themselves, so it might get long. Aside from that, I almost didn't pick up uh, pick this one for one very simple reason. My copy is an old oatmeal-colored hardback with no dust jacket. It has no cover. How can I talk about a book if I don't even have a photo of it on Instagram? <laughs> what made me decide to do it was the fact that two of the alien creatures from this book are featured in Barlow's Guide. Though I don't have a beautiful book sitting in front of me, I can review Wayne Douglas Barlow's illustrations when we're done with the summary. I'll also talk about the covers for Space Beagle on Google Images, um, which mostly feature a different creature that is a little more well-known in pop culture, uh, though some do offer alternatives to Barlow's work. Frankly, I'd love to have a shelf dedicated to nothing but Space Beagle book covers. I love comparing artist uh, interpretations. Part of why I chose this book for this rotation's classic episode, remember that it goes obscure, classic, weird, kids, yeah, uh, is, is that I read it several years before seeing Ridley Scott's Alien movies. As I mentioned before, I was a bit of a scaredy cat, uh, so I was in my mid-twenties before I discovered how awesome science fiction horror can be. It's not just about being scary, it's a vessel for practical effects, philosophy, and mind-bending ideas. I loved both Alien, well, I love <laughs> both. I loved Alien, The Thing, Poltergeist, and so on. But there was something about Alien that bugged me when I saw it the first time. Something about the major plot points that were familiar. It really reminded me of The Voyage of the Space Beagle. Later on, I found out I was right. Not that Alien is actually based on Space Beagle. <laughs> no one has ever said that was really the case. And the aliens only resemble each other superficially. But other people have noticed the similarities. In my opinion, that's inevitable since Alien takes inspiration from movies and sci-fi, B-horror, mystery genres, etc. to create something new, and some of those elements resemble Van Vogt's work. Wikipedia lists films with thematic similarities such as Night of the Blood Beast, and Then There Were None, and Jaws. There are other stories about creatures that are incredibly powerful, that stalk humans, that plant eggs in them. Anyway. Even though it may not have been on purpose, Van Vogt actually did sue 20th Century Fox over it, and they settled out of court. By the way, the name of the book is a reference to Charles Darwin's book, The Voyage of the Beagle, about his travels aboard a, a ship called the HMS Beagle. Let's talk about the author. A.E. Van Vogt is considered one of the greats of science fiction, writing about complex topics and writing notably non-racist depictions of foreign-born characters. Here is his bio from my copy. Connoisseurs of science fiction have come to expect from A.E. Van Vogt the rather unlikely combination of swift action, intricate imagination, depth of thought, and great plausibility. Born in Winnipeg, Canada in 1912, Van Vogt is a mild-mannered, scholarly-looking six-footer. He spent a youthful year on a farm as a separator man on a threshing machine, and then, at the age of 20, sat down at a typewriter and has never been far from one since. In the ensuing years, his name has become a most familiar one to readers of the more fantastic magazines. In 1939, he married E. Maine Hull, who is almost as well-known a uh, writer of what is popularly known as SF. They now live in Los Angeles. 
A.E. Van Vogt has a first name, which he dislikes immensely, <laughs> intensely, and which must remain his secret and ours. <laughs> According to Wikipedia, the A.E. stands for Alfred Elton. By the way, this book, uh, Anthology, uh, is dedicated to the writer Ford McCormick. Doing a quick Google search, I saw that Van Vogt also dedicated Rogue Ship to him, since he acted as a science advisor. Part 1. Black Destroyer On a dark, dying world under a red sun, a prowling creature called Coral searches for prey in vain. Quote, His great forelegs twitched with a shuddering movement that arched every razor-sharp claw. The thick tentacles that grew from his shoulders undulated tautly. He twisted his great cat head from side to side, while the hair-like tendrils that formed each ear vibrated frantically, testing every vagrant breeze, every throb in the ether. Unquote. Normally, he would be able to sense id creatures from miles away, but his powerful body is failing him. In a century of wandering, he had come across seven other corals that were withering away and killed them for their id, but now it's his turn. Just then, a round silver spaceship descends into the ruins of an ancient city, and Coral races towards it, his senses telling him there are id creatures inside to feed his aching belly. Two-legged beings in shiny spacesuits come outside, and Coral nearly rushes straight in for the kill. But something in his memory speaks of machines more powerful than himself. He reasons that he is seeing alien scientists on a mission, ones who would foolishly refrain from harming a specimen such as himself. So, boldly, he approaches them. One of those two-legged aliens is Elliot Grosvenor, the only Nexialist aboard the Space Beagle. He specializes in a field his fellow crewmates don't understand or respect, so he hangs back while they take the lead, waiting for the right opportunity. One of those specialists is Kent from the chemistry department, a popular man with a big personality and lots of support for his candidacy as the next expedition director. Personally, I'm taking no chances with anything as large as that, Kent says with a laugh, drawing his weapon. Morton, the current director, says it is exactly that caution that won Kent a spot on this mission, though Grosvenor wonders if the positive comment is more for those listening to their headpiece radio communications than for his political opponent's benefit. Morton steps forward ahead of the group, while the other specialists converse quietly, nervous about the cat's size and curious about its intelligence. Probably a member of the ruling race, someone says. Seidel, the psychologist, comments that although its shape suggests an animal, its willingness to approach is indicative of an aware, intelligent being, though it may have developed into a more primitive state since the days of city building. Coral resists his hunger, listening to the radio conversation through his ear tendrils and projecting his name on the same frequency while pointing at himself with a tentacle when he's about ten feet away. Though neither creature understands the other's language, the sentiment is communicated and Morton gets Gorley, chief of communications, on the job. Meanwhile, Seidel the psychologist notes that the cat's tentacles are tipped with suction cups that would allow the creature to operate machinery. It's time for lunch and deliberation. Director Morton wants to know what might have happened to the civilization on this planet. After it fell to ruins, why didn't it rise up again? The giant cat clearly wants to come along, and, with a good way, uh, without a good way to communicate yet, they let it come up the elevator with them to get a whiff of the onboard atmosphere. 
The high oxygen level should be fatal to him, based on the chlorine in the air outside. But the cat walks in with no problem. Smith, the biologist, is extremely interested, as no creature has ever been discovered that can breathe both chlorine and oxygen. Meanwhile, Grosvenor is uneasy about the giant cat, for different reasons than the others, who keep their distance. He's also uneasy about his position within, within the ship. Though he is technically the head of the Nexialist department, he's also the only member. And within the political landscape of the ship, he does not feel as free to speak with Director Morton as the other department heads do. The biggest manifestation of this problem is his spacesuit's headset, which was only fitted for receiving transmissions and sending out over the open channel. Private conversation is impossible. Inside the ship, the group comes to a series of elevators that go up to the living quarters. They make the mistake of sending the huge cat up on his own, scaring him into acting like a caged animal. He tears the doors off the elevator as it comes to a stop and feels foolish for revealing his true strength. Similarly, the humans regret scaring him. They watch the coral retreat to a carpeted room to lay on the carpet, where he contemplates how to seize this ship and fly it back to a planet with unlimited prey. Chapter 2 Coral settles into watching the humans, accompanying them outside as they explore the dead city. They offer him food, not realizing he must consume living things, for id, spelled I-D, is, quote, not merely a substance, but a configuration of a substance, unquote. Despite quivering with hunger, he patiently observes how machinery is operated, how many men go off into the city alone. As Coral watches the humans, who put up with his fierce gaze, so Grosvenor watches Coral. Because no one on the ship of nearly a thousand people really knows what an Exilist does, no one needs him, leaving him free to do so. He also listens to the open channel to hear conversations. The men are preoccupied with what they find in the ruins. There are tools, weapons, and machines. Pennons, the chief ship's engineer, notes that they are fitted with transformers for receiving energy, but no power source. Seidel, the psychologist, hypothesizes it was either war or a lack of food that caused the collapse. In response, Pennons wants to know why an advanced civilization like this wouldn't go off-world in search of food, and Director Morton points him to Lester, the astronomer who answers immediately, stating that nothing else significant orbits the nearby sun. There was nowhere else to go. So, tremendous would have been the problem of the ruling race of this world, that in one jump, they would have had to solve not only interplanetary, but interstellar spaceflight, Lester explains. There were stepping stones like humans had on Earth, moon, planets, stars, and beyond. Only after all that did they invent the anti-accelerator drive to allow for galactic travel. Grosvenor realizes he's lost sight of the giant cat and drives his little aircraft around uh, the ruins in search of him. Moments before, Coral slunk away into the rubble in search of a man who went off alone. His hunger takes over, and a green foam froths at his mouth as he stalks his prey. Though a large, alert man, he falls to the cat's huge paw. Coral rips open the spacesuit, generated and generating an energy field that prevents the id from leaking out of the muscles into the blood. Quote, he plunged his mouth into the warm body and let the lacework of tiny suction cups strain the id out of the cells. Unquote. The huge cat freezes and flees when a small aircraft flies overhead, returning to a group of humans to act innocent. After surveying the sprawling city, Grosvenor finds Coral sunning himself on a rock near the ship. 
For a while, he's satisfied to sit back and keep an eye on the big cat. But soon, a group announces over the radio that they've discovered the smashed body of a man from the chemistry department. Kent and the other colleagues mourn his loss, cursing their friend for going out alone. Not on the chemistry radio band, Grosvenor can't hear everything, so he asks permission before placing his hand on someone's arm to allow his suit to pick up the frequency through theirs. Everyone is shaken by how senseless the death is. Bloody, tattered, nothing taken. Smith the biologist thinks that some creature, possibly a big cat, killed the man to eat him only to dislike the alien meat. Before Grosvenor can say anything, everyone concludes that no one had their eyes on the feline 100% of the time so he could have snuck off and done this. Kent, as head of the chemistry department, thinks they should kill the cat now, rather than take any more chances. But Director Morton isn't ready to act yet. He calls Corita the archaeologist. Do you think the pussycat is a descendant of the dominant race of this planet? He asks. I will mention here that Corita is a Japanese character. Keep in mind that this story was originally published in the years surrounding World War II, so it was unusual for a Japanese character to be written in a straightforward, respectful way. Korita considers the question. He thinks out loud, saying, Director Morton, there is a mystery here. Take a look, all of you, at that majestic skyline. Notice the architectural outline. In spite of the megalopolis which they created, these people were close to the soil. The buildings are not merely ornamented, they are ornamental in themselves. Here is the equivalent of the Doric Column, the Egyptian Pyramid, and the Gothic Cathedral, growing out of the ground, earnest, big with destiny. If this lonely, desolate world can be regarded as a Mother Earth, then the land had a warm, a spiritual place in the hearts of the inhabitants. The effect is emphasized by the winding streets. Their machines prove they were mathematicians, but they were artists first. And so they did not create the geometrically designed cities of the ultra-sophisticated world metropolis. There is a genuine artistic abandon, a deep, joyous emotion written in the curving and unmathematical arrangements of houses, buildings, and avenues. A sense of intensity, of divine belief, and an inner certainty. This is not a decadent, hoary-with-age civilization, but a young and vigorous culture, confident, strong with purpose. There it ended. Abruptly, as if at that, at this point the culture had its battle of tours and began to collapse like the ancient Mohammedan civilization. Or as if one leap in, it spanned centuries of adjustment and entered the period of contending states. However, there is no record of a culture anywhere in the universe making such an abrupt jump. It is always a slow development. And the first step is a merciless questioning of all that was once held sacred. Inner certainties cease to exist. Previously unquestioned convictions dissolve before the ruthless probings of scientific and analytical minds. The skeptic becomes the highest type of human being. I say that this culture ended suddenly in its most flourishing age. The sociological effects of such a catastrophe would be an end of morality, a, a reversion to bestial criminality unleavened by a sense of ideal. There would be a callous indif indifference to death. If this... If Pussycat is a descendant of such a race, then he will be a cunning creature, a thief in the night, a cold-blooded murderer who would cut his own brother's throat for gain. The listening men are horrified, and again, Kent asks to execute the big cat. However, Smith the biologist feels they should preserve the beautiful specimen, even if it did kill one of their own. 
He's a biological treasure house, the biologist says. The two men argue in hushed tones, one wishing for unscientific revenge, while the other lists all the departments that will want to have a look at the pussycat. Director Morton asks Corey Tupfer another opinion, speculating that coral could be from a more advanced, if technically inferior, culture than humans. If they're going to speculate that the cat is a murderer, they can as easily guess that he is incapable of such thoughts. He announces that the alien will be allowed to live, and any deaths from now on are the fault of the human negligence. Besides, there could be other dangerous creatures around. Kent, the chemist, is furious, determined to find out what it was the cat wanted from the body. The autopsy is his new priority. Chapter 3 Grosvenor heads to his department, Science of Nexialism. There are five rooms full of machines and instruments that he has all to himself. He sits at his desk to work on a report for the director. Quote, he analyzed the possible physical structure of the cat-like inhabitant of this cold and desolate planet. He pointed out that so virile a monster should not be regarded merely as a biological treasure house. The phrase was dangerous in that it might make people forget that the beast would have its own drives and needs based on a non-human metabolism. Unquote. To be included with this report is a statement of direction, a nexialist term for a plan of action based on available evidence. When it is done, he sends it off to Morton's office, then has dinner. Afterward, he finds out the big cat is in the library. Grosvenor goes there to watch him. An hour later, Kent, the head chemist, and a bunch of others come in with a bowl filled with a brown concoction. He looks haggard and strained. I've identified the missing element, he announces to those present. It's potassium. There was only about two-thirds or three-quarters of a normal amount of potassium left in that man's body. This element is necessary for the body's electrical signals for life itself. The bowl he brought, is in, uh, brought in contains living cells with meta- uh, potassium in suspension, and Kent believes the big cat rejected human food because he couldn't smell any active potassium in the dead stuff. I think he gets the vibrations of things, Gorley, the communications specialist, says. Sometimes when he wiggles those tendrils, my instruments register a distinct and very powerful wave of static. Everyone is interested in Kent's experiment, and they watch as the bowl is set down in front of the cat. Coral examines it, identifying the id in the contents. Yes, it's there, but in such trace amounts that it's useless to him. However, the purpose of the experiment is clear enough, and Coral picks up the bowl with a suction cup tentacle to fling the gruel at Kent's face, then grabs the man with another tentacle to fling him aside. The text uses the term Hauser Thick, referring to a fat rope or cable used for towing a ship, to explain how big the cat's tentacles are. In his anger, Coral forgot to disarm the man, and Kent fires his vibrator gun. The cat's ear tendrils hum as they cancel out the energy beam. More men reach for their weapons. Stop! Grosvenor shouts. We'll all regret it if we act hysterically. Both Coral and Kent turn on him, one waiting while the other fumes. Grosvenor feels he did what was necessary to de-escalate the situation, but now his authority to do so is being questioned. What the hell do you mean by giving orders? Kent demands. The break in tension gives Seidel, the psychologist, a chance to speak, pointing out that Kent doesn't seem like he actually lost control, but really just wanted a chance to kill the cat in an acceptable manner. Surrounded by people whose votes he wants, Kent goes off on a rant. Corita was right when he said ours was a highly civilized age. It's positively decadent. 
my God, isn't there a man here who can see the horror of the situation? Jarvie did only a few hours, and this creature, whom we all know to be guilty, lying here unchained, planning his next murder. And the victim is probably here in this room. What kind of men are we? Are we fools, cynics, or ghouls? Or is it that our civilization is so steeped in reason that we can contemplate even a murderer sympathetically? Morton was right. That's no animal. That's a devil from the deepest hell of this forgotten planet. Seidel tells Kent to settle down, that they can vote on what to do about an animal that is currently cornered with a 1,000 to 1 chance of escape, when Smith the biologist points out that Kent's tracer beam struck the cat directly on the head with no effect. With this intriguing and shocking new knowledge, the group compromises. The cat will be placed in a cage. Grosvenor, on the other hand, feels that a cage won't hold a creature that can work the lock mechanism. He says they should put the creature outside for the night, but he's ignored. Persisting, Grosvenor confirms that they want the cat in a cage or a locked room, then goes up to Coral and gently takes one of its tentacles. The cat is taken aback, but allows himself to be led away. Grosvenor leads him to a room, and the doors slam shut, caging the creature in a room designed for holding dangerous specimens. Coral is furious, but he does not let it show. After a hundred years of thinking of nothing but food, his brain is remembering long-forgotten possibilities. He settles in to outsmart the fools around him. Eventually, the humans will sleep, and as he once did before Coral's achieved relative immortality, and he'll be ready. Coral listens to the pattern of men coming by to check the door while he tunes his body to the frequency of the ship's atomic engine, feeling the flow of electricity into the wires of the lock on his cage. It clicks open, and he pushes through the door with a tentacle. The text says, For a moment he felt a, a return of contempt, a glow of superiority, as he thought of the stupid creatures who dared to match their wits against a coral. And in that moment he suddenly remembered that there were a few other corals on this planet. It was a strange and unexpected thought, for he had hated them and had fought them ruthlessly. Now he saw that vanishing small group as his kind— if they were given a chance to multiply, no one, least of all these men, would be able to stand against them. Thinking of that possibility, he felt weighted down by his limitations, his need for other corals, his aloneness. One against a thousand, with the galaxy at stake. The starry universe itself beckoned his rapacious, vaulting ambition. If he failed, there would never be a second chance. In a floodless world, he could not hope to solve the secret of space travel. Even the builders had not freed themselves from their planet. Coral finds a bedroom and a sleeping man, and quickly pounces on him, crushing his throat, and sucks the id from his body. He does this seven times, then returns to his cage with perfect timing as someone comes to check on him. Then he slips into four more bedrooms. However, he pauses when he comes to a dormitory of twenty-four men. Quote, For more than a thousand years, he had slain all the living forms he could capture. Unquote. There is no way he can resist this temptation. He finishes the satisfying deed and realizes he's overstayed his welcome. Coral's fantasy of a night of swift, perfect, timed killings crumbles. It is now unlikely he can seize the ship in one day. The cat lopes back to his cage to find the two guards discussing the open door. Upon seeing the nightmare of his shape in the corridor, one draws a weapon while the other lets out a shriek to wake the whole ship that ends when Coral kills them both. Not sure yet what else to do, he flings the bodies away from the prison and locks himself back up, pretending to sleep, preparing himself for the struggle of a lifetime. 
Chapter 4 Grosvenor arrives at the scene to find the corridors overcrowded and impossible to get through. Director Morton is horrified by how many essential workers were lost. Some people are shouting about space madness, much to Grosvenor's annoyance. Quote, It was a meaningless phrase, still current after all these years of space travel. The fact that men had gone insane in space from loneliness, fear, and tension did not make a special sickness of it. There were certain emotional dangers on a long voyage like this one. They were among the reasons why he had been put aboard, but insanity from loneliness was not likely to be one of them. Unquote. Though Morton also finds the suggestion of space madness unhelpful, he's not in a position to criticize tense, afraid people. Dr. Eggert then arrives to examine the bodies, and Grosvenor seizes the opportunity to follow him through the crowd to where Morton is. The doctor makes it clear that the dead men's throats were crushed by something ten times stronger than a human. They discuss whether the big cat could have done it. At first, Morton thinks no, but Smith, the biologist, points out that coral seems to be able to interact with energy fields. They agree that the only proof they have of the creature not being invincible is the fact that it hasn't killed them all already. Morton doesn't hesitate any longer to go to the cage door and activate the switches that will electrocute the whole room, but the fuses flare up for only a moment before turning black. This failure confirms that the cat is vulnerable to powerful energies, so he must interfere with them, and the men begin planning how to get something bigger over here to blast him with. Clearly Coral knows what they're planning, and they can hear him slamming against the wall inside. Grosvenor is less optimistic than the others that the beast is truly trapped. Captain Leith arrives with other military officers. Everyone is now on the same page about killing the creature they brought on board, so it's time for him to take charge. While the corridor is mostly cleared out of men, they begin to feel odd shifts, as if the engine is being tested. Then the ship lurches and accelerates upwards, knocking everyone down with the power of six times Earth gravity. Grosvenor forces himself up and makes his way to the spaceship, uh, spacesuit storeroom, where Captain Leith has already arrived. They help each other into suits, relieving the pressure of takeoff, before helping others to do the same so they can all, uh, so they can all pass out suits. Grosvenor returns to the cage where other scientists have gathered at the newly opened door. A huge hole was punched through the opposite wall, proving the impossible power of their opponent. Upon closer inspection, they discover that the edges of the hole crumble into dust at touch. I know something of metallurgy, Grosvenor says, pushing his way forward. Smith, the biologist, doesn't recognize him, assuming he's one of the dead metallurgist's assi uh, assistants. Grosvenor lets him think that for now, saying, This creature used his special powers to interfere with the forces holding the metal together. Everyone is anxious and afraid, for a super being now controls the ship the engine room, and the machine shops. The thing doesn't dominate the engine room completely, an officer says. We've still got the control bridge, and that gives us first control of all the machines. When questioned as to why the officers didn't focus on shutting off the engines rather than sticking men in spacesuits, the man says that Captain Leith was prioritizing everyone's safety before revealing their advantages to the beast. Despite some tension between scientists like Director Morton and military ship crew like Captain Leith, Morton seizes control to conduct an experiment. First, they're going to surround and storm the engine room with blasters, where Coral has locked himself in. Second, they'll use the bridge controls to shut off everything but the main acceleration, since a planet-bound alien has never been subjected to so much gravity before. Everyone is glad to have something to do, but Grosvenor watches from afar with a sense of dread. This is a big, old-fashioned, front-on attack. 
Morton gives the order, and the power is switched off. Everything but the main engines. The corridors go black, and they have to rely on their spacesuit uh, space lights. The men turn on the blasters to get through the engine room doors, which, take which will take about 15 minutes. After 10, there's no movement inside, and the director gets nervous. Then, suddenly, it becomes apparent they're not getting any further as the metal rapidly cools. The experiment was a failure. Chapter 5 Grosvenor gives his credentials to a guard at the door of the bridge. I haven't admitted anyone in here who's under 40, the guard says. Nexialism? What's that? Applied holism, Grosvenor says, going inside. This is his first time on the bridge. The control board is, a, is compact, but huge, made up of curving tiers of instruments. Below that is an auditorium to fit a hundred, already filling up, and Grosvenor finds himself a seat. The meeting starts, and Director Morton explains how the creature made the engine room doors impregnable. Kent, the head chemist, says there's no point in knowing how this was accomplished if they can't fight against it. Morton agrees that they need to do some planning, asking Selensky, the pilot, to start all the engines again. There's no point in keeping them off right now. I'm going to ask various experts to give their suggestions for fighting the pussycat, the director says. What we need here is a consultation between many different specialized fields, and, however interesting theoretical possibilities might be, what we want is a practical approach. Grosvenor knows this more or less dismisses him. Nexialism is the integration of many sciences, which should be what they're looking for, but his answers probably wouldn't be perceived as practical. Two hours later, Grosvenor is not one of the specialists to be addressed, and everyone is getting tired. A half-hour break is called. To Grosvenor, it feels like he's been given a scant 30 minutes to solve the problem. Quote, The trouble with what the scientists had agreed on was that it was not thorough enough. A number of specialists had pulled their knowledge on a fairly superficial level. Each had briefly outlined his ideas to people who were not trained to grasp the wealth of association behind each notion, and so the attack plan lacked unity." Unquote. Grosvenor looks back on his education at the Nexial Foundation with new appreciation, knowing now that all other education systems are outdated. He's young, only 31, but he was the only Nexialist put on this ship six months ago, and it's up to him to use what he knows and convince the authorities. Grosvenor gathers more information by calling other departments and talking to subordinates. Some of them react to his department head title immediately, some pass him over to their own supervisor, like Smith in biology, and others, like Kent in chemistry, are impatient. Kent in particular is very condescending towards him, refusing to give over unchecked atmospheric data during an unrelated crisis. The time has passed for academic discussion, the older man says. You don't seem to understand that we're in a deadly that we're in deadly danger. If anything goes wrong, you and I and the others will be physically attacked. It won't be an exercise in intellectual gymnastics. And now, please don't bother me again for ten years. Grosvenor is angered, yet amused, to be hung up on in this way, and continues making calls. He has created a chart to map out everything from volcanic dust in the air of the planet's uh, of the coral's planet to the types of seeds that would have grown there to the digestive tracts of animals that would feed on plant life. It's a special chart used by Nexialists, and he makes several copies of it. Finished, Grosvenor takes the chart to the mathematics department in order to hand it to Director Morton, only to be turned away and told they'll try to bring it to his attention. He's had enough of being told things like that. Sure, his reports never make it to the director, 
but he's several years younger even than Martin's secretary, who makes it clear that Nexialism is considered a younger science, hardly worth considering. Next, Grosvenor goes to Captain Leith, who to his credit does meet with him. However, the captain doesn't agree with the Nexialist's suggestion to allow the monster to escape, stating that it must be executed, as much for punishment as everyone's safety. The young man is then asked to leave. It's time for the meeting to start again. Director Morton is looking rather disgruntled, but pushes forward with asking what, uh, that the experts give their suggestions for overpowering their foe. Pennons, the chief engineer, says his team will create a switch that will let them start and stop various machinery to knock the creature off balance, allowing them to blast through the doors. Gorley, the chief communications engineer, says his team will go in with various gadgets meant to overwhelm the monster's energy manipulation capabilities. Selensky, the chief pilot, reminds everyone that the plan must be executed in quick succession, giving the monster no breaks from the barrage and increasing its confusion. Then they'll decelerate the ship, a sensation the cat has never felt before. Corita, the archaeologist, summarizes the big cat's mistakes, panicking in the elevator, revealing its powers after the bowl of potassium experiment, getting caught on its nighttime killing spree. This points to a primitive, egotistical mind. Corita says, He is like the ancient German soldier who felt superior to the elderly Roman scholar as an individual. Yet the latter was part of a mighty civilization, of which the German of that day stood in awe. In short, Corita thinks they can win. Much to the ma- young man's surprise, Director Morton calls on Grosvenor to outline his plan, if only because he was so determined to share it that he visited both the director and the commander. Shakily, Grosvenor does, first giving a little introduction. At the Nexial Foundation, we teach that behind all the grosser aspects of any science, there is an intricate tie-up with other sciences, he says. There's too much to explain right now, so he moves on, though he says that someone trained in the overlapping sciences can solve the problem of the cat. He is able to break down the history of the planet. 1,800 years ago, due to volcanic soil in the atmosphere, the sunlight changed and most plants died. While out exploring, the ship's crew found deer-like creatures that were nearly impossible to catch that contained potassium similar to earth creatures. Since there is almost no plant life, there are very few deer or other creatures, and the big cats lost most of their food source. It's very strange that in all this time, the cats never tried to farm the deer or the plants. He deduces that the cats were not the dominant race on this planet, but animals experimented on by the city builders. Grosvenor looks out over his rapt audience, trying to ignore the way Kent, the chemist, looks off into the distance as if annoyed. He keeps going, even though he knows some of what he's going to say won't make much sense to anyone without his particular scientific training. What about the city builders? He concludes that they wiped themselves out in an atomic war 1800 years ago, darkening the skies. The big cat is intelligent, yes, but he is not a builder or natural tool user and he is not fully aware of his own abilities. If they, get him, uh, if they let him escape the ship, he'll be at their mercy. Grosvenor thanks his audience and sits. Some of the experts in the room scoff at the history presented. Others want more evidence, and others say it's more or less compatible with what they've found. When pressed further, Grosvenor says the best course of action would be to give the cat access to a corridor leading off from the engine room that goes to an escape pod. Captain Leith makes the final call, saying that if the current plan fails, Grosvenor's will be considered. Chapter 6 
Meanwhile, in the machine shop, Coral works on a lifeboat ship in the hopes of readying it for escape. He remembers most of what the builders taught him, how to use and adapt to machinery. With this little ship, he could get back to his planet, teach his fellow corals, and go out into the universe in search of id. Then again, he's not sure if he has to leave the ship. The humans don't seem capable of overpowering him. Suddenly, the attack plan is set in motion. The engines are turned off and on, and just as Coral almost has them back to normal, the blasters are fired on the doors. He can't deal with both problems at once. He must escape. With the lifeboat ready, he tries to vibrate the wall of the engine room into collapse. But the hull of the ship is too dense. The attempt pushes him to his limit. Then, as the doors are busted down, he succeeds and jumps into the lifeboat for takeoff. In space, Coral can see the big ship and all its lighted portholes. He maneuvers the lifeboat back towards his home planet, letting the human's ship fall behind. But then something strange happens. The sun he was headed towards gets smaller, and the human's ship gets bigger. It's too much for his mind to take. Coral rages in the tiny pod, and in a single moment of lucidity that knows cannons are aimed at him, he creates, quote, the violent cell disorganization that freed every droplet of id from his vital organs, unquote. Back on the Space Beagle, Captain Leaf does not stop firing on the lifeboat until there's almost nothing left. Director Morton comments on how terrifying it must have been for the animal during those moments of anti-acceleration that allowed the humans to create the illusion of fading into the background, then appearing again in front of the lifeboat. The conversation turns towards wiping out the entire remaining coral population. All they have to do is land and wait for the starving animals to come to them. Grosvenor points out that they don't have to do even that much. They can simply let the murderous cats go hungry and die out, unaware of any visitors. Part 2. War of Nerves. Chapter 7. Grosvenor hangs a flyer on the bulletin board. Lecturer, Elliot Grosvenor. Place, Nexial Department. Time, 1550-971. There is a footnote regarding the date and time. The ship operated on what was called star time, based on a 100-minute hour and a 20-hour day. The week had 10 days, with a 30-day month and a 360-day year. The days were numbered, not named, and the calendar was reckoned from the moment of takeoff. Though he likes his flyer, Grosvenor notes that, quote, The announcement competed with eight other lectures, three motion pictures, four educational films, nine discussion groups, and several sporting events, unquote. Not to mention the people who prefer to read in their rooms or hang out with friends. Then again, Grosvenor used not a piece of paper, but a gadget that makes the words change color like a neon sign, so it really stands out. As he heads out for some lunch, someone hands him uh, an advertisement for a political election meeting. It's for Kent, the head of chemistry, who's running to be the next ship director. It emphasizes that he cares for scientists who make up 804 of the 984 people on board, which Grosvenor finds distasteful. Interstellar travel is dangerous enough already without dividing people among arbitrary lines. That was the whole reason democracy was introduced to these flights. The meeting also just so happens to be at almost the exact same time as Grosvenor's lecture. He finds some eating companions, including a junior chemist named Dennison, who wants to know who he's voting for. Grosvenor finds the question to be rather private, wishing to change the subject, but the others persist. You'll vote for Kent, won't you? Dennison urges. Morton's only a mathematician, 
Not a scientist in the true sense of the word. Scientists have to stick together. Just imagine, here's an entire shipload of us. And what do they put over us? A man who deals in abstractions. Grosvenor can't help but throw in a few digs at Kent, seeing as Dennison is a chemist. That's a new one on me, he says. I've been laboring for years under the delusion that mathematicians were scientists. Grosvenor eats, still salty that the election meeting was scheduled at the same time as his lecture. Kent is the kind of person who won't forget his friends, Dennison insists. I'll wager he also has special treatment for those he dislikes, Grosvenor quips. He feels intensely aware that ships like the Space Beagle act as petri dishes for civilization, both the good and the bad. When Dennison says everyone should vote for Kent if they know what's good for them, Grosvenor says, Maybe I'll run for the directorship myself. Get the votes of all the men, 35 and younger. After all, we outnumber the oldsters three, three or four to one. Democracy demands that we have representation on a proportional basis. Not having won himself any closer friends, Grosvenor gets ready for his lecture and is dismayed when it's almost time and no one has arrived. Was this Kent's doing? Or is it just the nature of things? He remembers that he was told before coming aboard the Space Beagle, quote, Nexialism is a tremendous new approach to learning and association. The older men will fight it instinctively. The young men, if they have already been educated by ordinary methods, will automatically be hostile to anything which suggests that their newly acquired techniques are out of date. Unquote. After an hour, Grosvenor goes to the bulletin board to change the time. Then again an hour later. Finally, two men from the chemistry department arrive, acting with exaggerated politeness and mockery. Eight people in total arrive, including two more chemists and McCann, the head of geology. Not one to be entirely discouraged, Grosvenor is buoyed by having an audience and gives his lecture. Afterward, McCann comes to speak to him about the use of a sleep machine that teaches while you sleep. Without proper training, a person can only tolerate it for a few minutes every hour, but with hypnosis and psychotherapy, Grosvenor is capable of sleeping a full eight hours with it turned on. The Nexialist emphasizes that there are many learning methods used, including tachistoscopic films and the use of one's senses, touch, hearing, sight, smell, and taste. It's all about repetition and speed. It sounds too outlandish, and McCann is a bit doubtful, but he also wants Grosvenor to come speak to the geology department so they can work on utilizing some of these advanced techniques. Though the chemists who attended the lecture leave laughing, Grosvenor feels victorious for having made an impression on one person today. Chapter 8 Grosvenor is shocked the next morning when he arrives at his department to find the door open and three of the five rooms full of chemists moving stuff in. The remaining two rooms have had a lot of the other Nexialist equipment shoved in. Upon closer inspection, he sees most of the chemistry materials are for food production. Kent has cleverly usurped the space for the greater good, leaving Grosvenor only two rooms with a back door. It would look to most people as if the space was being better utilized now than it was before. Setting aside his anger, Grosvenor assesses the situation. His dislike of Kent must have been reported by Dennison. So, he goes around telling people, Will you pass the world along that I welcome this opportunity to further the education of the staff to, of the chemistry department, and that I hope no one will object to learning while he works? The first thing Grosvenor does after that is go into his remaining workrooms and put together a hypnotic gas, which he locks in a cabinet in the outer room where everyone is working. 
When confronted, he first says it's part of his educational program. Then he says he's only joking, that it's merely a deodorant to counteract the chemistry smells. The gas works fast, and Grosvenor quickly deduces who is well affected. To one man, he says, Go to the washroom in five minutes, and I'll give you something. Now forget about it. He repeats this with six men, giving each one a different time. When the men come to the washroom, Grosvenor gives them a tiny ear crystal to wear. He then explains to them that it is a radio, that they will never consciously hear what is said through it, that you'll forget it's even there. Well, imagine that, the men say. After switching up the hypnotic gas, Grosvenor gets about 10 of the 15 technicians into a deep enough state of hypnosis to give them earpieces. His plan is to turn them into geniuses, though it will take some work. The hypnosis has to be carefully maintained, and an educational program will be played through the earpieces on loop. The next item on the itinerary is to visit Director Morton's office in the mathematics department. It's an impressive space with a whole wall dedicated to a view screen of the Milky Way, including star clusters just outside Galaxy proper, like the one the Space Beagle is currently passing through. They won't be stopping at any of these suns, instead heading farther out to another galaxy. Morton already knows about the chemistry department's invasion of the Nexialist space. Just to see what he'll do, Grosvenor asks that Kent's team be removed, but the director shakes his head. Pressing further, Grosvenor asks if it's okay for one department head to take over another space, to which Morton replies, Let us suppose that I placed this matter on the agenda, and then it was decided that Kent could have that part of your department he has already taken over. The status, being affirmed, would thereafter be permanent. It occurred to me that you might not care to have that limitation placed upon you at this stage. Grosvenor is pleased. He and the director are on the same page about this, knowing that Kent will have to be pushed out using subtler means. The head chemist has already applied for use of Grosvenor's four stolen rooms. Morton's office controls what goes on the meeting agendas, so he can also keep Kent's application for space off the list for at least one meeting, and then cancel the next meeting, giving the Nexialist 22 days to take action. Privately, Grosvenor doesn't think he needs quite so long, but there's no harm in having extra time. Before leaving, he brings up the problem with his spacesuit headset not being tuned in with the other department heads, and Morton promises to have the clerical air fixed. They shake hands and part. Upon returning to the jumbled mess of the Nexialism department, Grosvenor discovers Seidel the psychologist watching the chemists continue to convert the space to their needs. Young man, isn't this a little unethical? He asks. Playing dumb regarding the hypnosis, Grosvenor agrees that the takeover of his space is indeed unethical. That isn't what I meant, but I see that you feel justified, Seidel concludes. Pivoting, Grosvenor asks, Are you referring to the method of instruction I am using on these men? The psychologist is hesitant to take Grosvenor's side in this. He was asked by Kent to take a look at the men who have been acting a bit odd, and he finds it disagreeable that Grosvenor has hypnotized people without their permission. The Nexialist argues that the takeover of his department space is unlawful, and the use of hypnosis is to prove a point, not to humiliate or take advantage of anyone. Yes, in a personal quarrel between himself and Kent, Grosvenor is utilizing innocent bystanders, but the psychologist has seen for himself that the only information being fed to the chemists is more chemistry. I regard my department as an educational center, Grosvenor says. People who force themselves in here receive an education whether they like it or not. Seidel understands Grosvenor's point of view, and thinks Kent will be glad to know his associates are learning more. 
Grosvenor, on the other hand, has a feeling that Kent is the sort of person who would rather his underlings have less knowledge than himself. He watches the psychologist leave, knowing he'll have to come up with a new plan. To get some perspective, Grosvenor seeks out Corita, the archaeologist in the library. He wants a bigger perspective on democracy as a whole, to know how he can avoid antagonizing Kent and sending the whole ship into a tailspin towards dictatorship. Corita smiles and says it would be a unique victory if he succeeds. Chapter 9 As the two men walk down the corridor, they come to a window looking out into space. Grosvenor is about to say that he would like to see Corita again, but the words catch in his throat when he looks outside and sees a woman wearing a feathered hat. This bizarre image is followed by flashing lights and sounds, along with pain and clenching of the eyes. Hypnotic hallucinations! Grofner's training allows him to break the cycle and reject what he sees and feels. He runs for the nearest communicator and shouts, Don't look at the images! They're hypnotic! We're being attacked! He trips over Corita's body on the floor. The historian was overcome by what he saw, but he isn't dead. So, Grosvenor uses his own hypnosis training to instruct Corita to listen only to his commands, to calm down, and to not respond negatively to the hallucinations anymore. When I say three, you're wide awake. One, two, three, wake up. Fighting the effects of the flashing lights himself, Grosvenor hurries with Corita back to the Nexialist department, helping others wake up along the way. The attack is very persistent, and images of women keep popping up. Not everyone they come across is unconscious. One man stares into space, while another fires his weapon at them. Grosvenor tackles him, and the man, a Kent supporter, growls at him. You damned spy! We'll get you! There's no time to worry about this, though it is worrying that the hallucinations have driven someone to the point of violence so quickly. In his department, Grosvenor gets a, pack, a pair of dark glasses for himself and for Corita, then turns on his own specialized lights to counteract the effects. He checks his instruments and determines that the onslaught has overridden his own hypnosis, so he can no longer influence the chemists with the earpieces. Just in case, they drag those men into the washroom and lock the door, in case they wake up and attack him like their colleague did. Grosvenor can tell that this whole thing is an attempt at mind control through visual images and hallucinations. True control of one, uh, one alien's nervous system by another is not really possible, but the men are greatly affected just the same. He needs to reach the bridge and turn on the ship's energy screen to black out the attack. Just then, he feels a sensation that tells him the ship has changed course. Telling Corita to stay put, Grosvenor takes a portable light source and gets in a loading vehicle, zipping through the corridors past unconscious and fighting people until he reaches the control room. He's not the only one there. There are overturned vehicles with people ducking behind them with weapons as Captain Leith defends the bridge and Director Morton's people attack. Clearly, the hallucinations and confusion are bringing out all the hostility they felt between the military officers and the scientists, and they're vying for control. Under normal circumstances, these pent-up feelings would never come to all-out war. Unable to do anything, Grosvenor returns to his department. Corita immediately has him look at the instruments to see that the ship is heading straight towards a white-hot star. They have 11 hours until impact. He has to get into the control room. With Corita's help, Grosvenor sets up an encephalo-adjuster, a device that will allow him to transmit impulses from one mind to another. It takes them 37 minutes. Reluctantly, Corita agrees to stay behind while Grosvenor speeds through the ship on the loading vehicle. Now that time has passed, the hypnotized people will be much more unpredictable, waking up suddenly and responding to repressed impulses. 
men who dislike each other might be pushed towards murderous hatred without realizing it. He reaches the correct corridor, where three men are already dead and flamethrowers are blasting. Then the fire stops when there's some kind of explosion. Only the ship's ventilation system keeps them from suffocating on smoke and dust in the narrow spaces. Director Morton spots Grosvenor and beckons him over. Although influenced by hypnosis, Morton acts reasonably, as though it's fully understandable how the ship has descended into warfare so suddenly, with Leith and Kent making trouble. Grosvenor activates the encephalo adjuster sitting in the vehicle, aiming it at Morton, and the director unfortunately knows what it is and wants to know what he plans to do with it. He explores the thoughts being pushed into his mind about aliens attacking the ship, but his reason is quickly overcome by the idea that Grosvenor can use this machine against Leith the next time the captain tries to make a deal. The temporary truce between sides gives Grosvenor the opportunity to leave and see Captain Leith. To his surprise, the captain's motives are quite sincere. He and the rest of the officers are dedicated to keeping the ship functioning as well as preventing the scientist factions from taking control lest they damage vital systems. Is he really willing to drive the ship into a sun just to prevent a hostile takeover? Grosvenor activates the machine. The text says, Brainwaves, minute pulsations transmitted from axon to dendrite, from dendrite to axon, always following a previously established path depending on past associations. It was a process that operated endlessly among the 90 million neuron uh, cells of a human brain. Each cell was in its own state of electrocolloidal balance, an intricate interplay of tension and impulse. Only gradually, over the years, had machines been developed that could detect with some degree of accuracy the meaning of the energy flow inside the brain. The earliest encephalo-adjuster was an indirect descendant of the famous electroencephalograph, but its function was the reverse of that first device. It manufactured artificial brainwaves of any desired pattern. Using it, a skillful operator could stimulate any part of the brain, and so cause thoughts, emotions, and dreams, and bring up memories from the individual's past. It was not in itself a controlling instrument. The subject maintained his own ego. However, it could transmit the mind impulses of one person to a second person. Since the impulses varied according to the sender's thoughts, the recipient was stimulated in a highly flexible fashion. Unfortunately, Captain Leith, too, sees too much potential in the Nexialist to fully let go of his war plan. Though not familiar with the adjuster, he only absorbs a bit of the information about the flashing images influencing the scientists, nothing about aliens. He wants to use Grosvenor as a sort of spy or saboteur. Disheartened, Grosvenor realizes the problem is too big for him and his little machine to overcome. There are armed men everywhere. The number of dead bodies is increasing. Kent's faction has been working on a chemical attack that is starting now, based on the shouting in the distance. Grosvenor says he needs some equipment from his department and is let out via the back elevator. Now the only thing left to do is give the aliens a taste of their own medicine. Chapter 10 For a long time, Grosvenor labors over his instruments and the encephalo adjuster, sweating with anxiety in a chill room while Corita watches before he finally has to admit that he doesn't know enough about the enemy to succeed. All he knows about them, aside from their hypnotic attack method, is that they have curiously woman-like bodies and faces, though some are partly doubled. How is it you were able to save me and not the others? Koita asks. I got to you right away, Grovner replies. For everyone else, the hallucinations have been on repeat for a long time now, 
and only a Nexialist mind trained in the right type of hypnosis could withstand it. More importantly, Grofner wants the historian's advice to gain some insight into what type of civilization they're dealing with. Beings who can use hypnosis over a distance, as these can, would probably be able to stimulate each other's minds, Grofner says, and so would have naturally the kind of telepathy that human beings can only obtain through the encephalo-adjuster. What else would the ability to read minds without artificial aids have on a culture? This gets Corey to thinking, despite his initial hesitance to speculate about a never-before-seen alien race. Since they can read each other's minds, there would be little to no doubt in society. They would hurry through the stages of civilization, quickly ending up in a state of decline that creates a dislike for change and a lack of empathy. It's not a perfect hypothesis, but it's all they've got. So Grosvenor has to work with the assumption that the space beagle has been attacked because its newness unsettles the aliens they've stumbled across. He only has seven hours to save everyone. Grosvenor succeeds in reversing the images and projects them into a view screen with the encephalo adjuster so he can examine them clearly. The text says, That first clear look astounded him. It was only vaguely humanoid, and yet it was understandable how his mind had leaped to the woman identification earlier. Its overlapping double face was crowned with a neat bun of golden feathers, but its head, though now unmistakably bird-like, did have a human appearance. There were no feathers on its face, which was covered with a lacework of what seemed to be veins. The human appearance resulted from the way those markings had formed into groups, to give the effect of cheeks and a nose. The second pair of eyes and the second mouth were in each case nearly two inches above the first. They almost made a second head, which was literally growing out of the first. There was also a second pair of shoulders and a doubled set of short arms that ended in beautifully delicate, amazingly long hands and fingers. And the overall effect was still feminine. Grosvenor found himself thinking that the arms and fingers of the two bodies would be likely to separate first. The second body would then be able to support its weight. Parthenogenesis, Grosvenor thought. Reproduction without sex. The growth of a bud from a parent body and the final separation from the parent into a new individual. The image in the wall before him showed vestigial wings. Tufts of feathers were visible at the wrists. It wore a bright blue tunic over an astonishingly straight and superficially human-like body. If there were other vestiges of a feathery past, they were hidden by the clothing. What was clear was that this bird didn't, and couldn't, fly under its own power. Projecting his desire to know more using illustrations on a blackboard, Grosvenor is able to connect his mind to that of the aliens, obtaining images of a city of tall, slender buildings connected by narrow walking paths. Aside from those, he sees nothing advanced, no machines, aircrafts, cars, or interstellar communication equipment. The view jumps from bird creature to bird creature, seeing how they move nimbly through their high-up world on long legs with lightweight bones, how they function no normally even during the various stages of parthenogenesis. Finally, the images fade to a single alien pointing to the encephalo adjuster, asking for the return of information. Chapter 11 The next step is terrifying, even to Grosvenor. He is up against a race of creatures for whom telepathy is as natural as vision, who allowed him to flit between their minds for a view of their world. He must now give himself up to the same treatment and the danger of possibly many minds invading his. He will give himself five hours for the experiment, during which he will also listen to a recording of himself 
that will hopefully counteract the violent effects that the telepathic effect has had on the rest of the crew. Corita will be there to wake him if the conflict on the ship reaches the Nexialis department. For a moment, Grosvenor hears the recording, and the next it fades, replaced by a distant thunder. Quote, it became a steady throbbing, like the murmur of a large seashell, unquote. More and more, he gives himself over to the connection. The text says, His nose began to itch. He thought, they don't have noses. At least, I didn't see any. Therefore, it's either my own nose, or a random stimulation. He started to reach up to scratch it, and felt a sharp pain in his stomach. He would have doubled up with hurt of it if he had been able to. He couldn't. He couldn't scratch his nose. He couldn't even put his hands on his abdomen. He realized then that the itch and the pain stimuli did not derive from his own body, nor did they necessarily have any corresponding meaning in the other's nervous system. Two highly developed life forms were sending signals to each other. He hoped that he was sending signals to it also, which neither could interpret. More and more strange sensations come and go. A full stomach, a needle in his spine, a freezing stream down his back, a muscle cramp, a ripping of muscles. Grosvenor is badly shaken by the time the illusions fade away completely. Then there are more sensations, pleasant ones, though they are impossible to identify. There are soft words and feelings, and he sees a flower. Quote, It was a lovely red earth carnation, and thus could have no connection with the flora of the rim world. Unquote. Grosvenor doesn't know how the word rim came into his mind, but it seems to be the name of the alien race coming to him across the gulf. Despite this progress, he is still lost in a mess of stimuli that keep from achieving his goal of gaining control over one of his enemies to stop the attack on the space vehicle. His mind is so confused that he sometimes forgets if he is in space or on the rim planet. Even his intricate knowledge of the human brain and what different parts of it do when stimulated does not save him from near destruction. Finally, a breakthrough. Grosvenor's eyes are connected with the rim's eyes. He looks around the inside of a building filled with catwalks where bird people sit. The vision doesn't last, and he spends some time wondering if other races feel stimuli the way humans do. Quote, Under hypnosis, men could be conditioned to laugh uproariously when they were being tortured, and shriek with pain when tickled. Unquote. And some creatures only began to hear at the very upper limits of human range. There was no way to know what the rim experienced in comparison. Grosvenor, as a trained auto-hypnotic, carefully dampens the workings of some parts of his own mind to keep their sensations clear of the alien consciousness. This helps immensely. He can again see the inside of a building filled with bird people and carefully begins to manipulate the body of one of those whose eyes he sees through. This results in screams within the mind of the rim. The cells are calling, calling, it cries. The cells are afraid. Oh, the cells no pain. There is darkness in the rim world. Withdraw from the being far from rim. Shadows, darkness, turmoil. The cells must reject him, but they cannot. They were right to try to be friendly to the being who came out of the great dark since they did not know he was an enemy. The night deepens. All the cells withdraw, but they cannot. The thought that the attack on the space beagle might actually have been an attempt at friendly communication is rather horrifying to Grosvenor, and he regrets that his own presence within the creature's mind causes it pain, but he has no choice but to push on or his people will perish. Chapter 12 To ease the tortured being's thoughts, Grosvenor reproduces feelings he experienced during their initial connection, feelings of comfort from the time of parthenogenesis. 
He orients his own presence as like that of a parent rim, still in control of a duplicating body, and the controlled bird, uh, bird person settles into the arrangement. Grosvenor begins host jumping, seeing through the eyes of beings roosting in the forest, or one on the other side of the planet where it is nighttime. He jumps between more than a dozen hosts. It is a fascinating society, built on a neurological community relationship that at once holds it, holds it back mechanically and sends it far into the future philosophically. Now, how to convince millions of these bird people to retreat from their contact with men on the Space Beagle? He has to change their assumptions about their own invulnerability after centuries unchallenged, to make them cautious again, to make them aware of something greater than their own stagnant way of life. Over and over and over again, Grosvenor influences the Rim to let the humans of the Space Beagle sleep, and then to leave them alone. Your friendly action caused the ship great harm, he says. We are friendly to you also, but your method of expressing friendship hurt us. For about two hours, he continues pouring these ideas into the neural circuit. Then the timer goes off, and the adjuster breaks the connection. Corita is asleep. If the message was accepted, everyone on board the ship should be asleep. Grosvenor races through the ship of unconscious men and is able to get the ship turned around, away from the deadly sun. One crisis averted, Grosvenor goes around giving medical aid to sleeping, injured men. Now awake, Corita helps him examine the recently dead. Seven are taken to the resuscitation chambers, and four of them survive. Sadly, there are another 32 men who are long gone. Eventually, people start waking up, groaning with terrible memories, and asking to help. Captain Leith and Director Morton also come too, and want to speak with Grosvenor. They immediately congratulate him, and thank him for trying to make them aware of the situation. The two leaders have Grosvenor give a summary of accounts to a gathering of department executives. Am I to understand that this was actually an attempt at friendly communications? One man says angrily. You mean we can't go over there and bomb the hell out of them? Of course, the answer is no. They're not even planning to stop by the planet, seeing as most of them think it seems like a drab civilization of primitive bird people. Grosvenor reminds them that a simple community life can still be a truly fulfilling one. But, quote, It is unwise for birds, or men, to live too specialized in existence. I broke down their resistance to new ideas, something which I have not yet been able to do aboard this ship. The meeting ends, and Grosvenor is told by Director Morton that the chemistry department is going to withdraw their equipment from the Nexialist rooms. They hope not to speak of the incident again. <laughs> As for Kent, he got a whiff of his own weaponized gas, and will be on his back for several months. That means he'll miss the election, and Morton will run unopposed. Grosvenor hopes nothing bad will come of having a large number of men on board who wanted to vote for Kent, but couldn't. So, he suggests that Morton name Kent as his alternative, should anything happen to him. It will gain Morton trust within Kent's circles. It is because they equally dislike the head chemist that Morton sees the wisdom in Grosvenor's idea and decides to do it. Despite the generally good outcome of several bad situations, Grosvenor knows his fight with Kent is probably far from over. One skirmish does not win a war. Part 3. Discord in Scarlet. Chapter 13. An alien entity called Ixtal floats in the vacuum of space. All there is to see are points of light that are distant galaxies. Quote, Life was out there, spawning on the myriad planets that wheeled endlessly th around their parent suns. 
In the same way, life had once crawled out of the primeval mud of ancient galore before a cosmic explosion destroyed his own mighty race and flung his body out into the intergalactic deeps." Ixtol's body is nearly immortal, sustaining itself on the traces of light that reach him. It's a curse because it means his mind keeps working, aware of how small the chances are that he'll ever float near enough to a galaxy, star cluster, sun, or even planetoid to find Ghoul again. Spelled G-U-U-L. He is sensitive to the movement of the universe, to the nothingness that stretches for light years around him. Therefore, it takes Ixtel a moment to recognize the reality of the ship passing through the edge of his awareness. His long body convulses, his forearms and forelegs thrashed, and his dazed eyes refocus. Ixtel focuses his energy senses into a beam tied to the ship, clearly an intergalactic vessel zipping between galaxies. Over a distance of many light years, the ancient creature is able to draw power from the ship to revitalize himself using his energy field, shocking the life back into his body. Then he pulls himself along the beam towards the ship. At first, Ixtel thinks he won't make it. Even though the ship turned its engines off, its momentum still carries it at a speed of many light years per day. Then, much to his surprise, the ship comes to a stop. This is the technique of a very advanced scientific society. An impenetrable energy field goes up around the vessel, preventing Ixtel from getting closer than 50 meters to it. They must have thought he was a projectile and put up their defenses. He stares hungrily at the big, round ship with its thousands of glowing windows. The text says, His mind, grooved through the uncounted ages to ultimate despair, soared up insanely. His legs and arms glistened like tongues of living fire as they writhed and twisted in the light that blazed from the portholes. His mouth, a gash in his caricature of a human head, slavered a white froth that floated away in little frozen globules. Ixtel watches as a door opens, and two-legged beings come out in their spacesuits with machinery to do some speedy repair work. There are no weaknesses in the ship's defense shield, and Ixtel fights the panic he feels as the work is done and the beings retreat inside. Before the ship door closes all the way, one lone being comes back out to retrieve some forgotten object and, on their way inside, looks up to see the floating alien. The two creatures stare at each other. Then more two-legged beings come outside for a look. Ixtel perceives that they are discussing him. Soon, a metal-barred cage is brought out towards him. Though this is the opportunity Ixtel has been waiting endlessly for, his body and mind are not used to exercise. He has to fight off fatigue and lethargy. Quote, He would need all his alertness if his race, which had attained the very threshold of ultimate knowledge, was to live again. Unquote. Chapter 14 How in the name of all the hells can anything live in intergalactic space? Someone demands. The immense blackness of space, the extreme distance between the ship and the galaxies that look no bigger than stars, is really settling onto the shoulders of the Space Beagle's occupants, including Grosvenor. Director Morton, seemingly out of macabre curiosity, asks Lester the head astronomer to calculate the likelihood of crossing paths with the alien being they discovered outside. Lester just laughs in response, stating that to figure out the odds of something so crazy doesn't exist. How is it possible that they would come across a living creature out here between two galaxies at the exact moment when they happen to stop for repairs? Listening, Grosvenor thinks it's very likely that the hole burned through the engine room wall is related to the alien discovery. 
He doesn't say anything because he doesn't want to be asked any questions about the impossibilities that scenario suggests. How powerful would a creature need to be to perform such a feat? It was like wondering how much energy would be too much for a thousand corals to handle. Only a machine could do such a thing. The gathered men wonder if a creature as ugly as this should be blasted into oblivion on sight. A regular blood-red devil spewed out of a nightmare, ugly as sin, Morton observes, and possibly as harmless as our beautiful pussycat a few months ago was deadly. Smith, the biologist, gives it some thought. It may be a venerable old sage meditating in the silence of space where there are no distractions, he says. Or it may be a young murderer, condemned to exile, consumed with desire to get back home and resume life in his own civilization. Corita, the archaeologist, suggests the team open the energy field wide enough to let the cage out, then observe its organs functioning in the vacuum of space without food or locomotion. With the pussycat, they had a barren planet to make guesses about. With this thing, they know nothing. They must be careful. Grosvenor wonders if he should say anything. At this point, they know so little that a ship full of these creatures could be just waiting out of range for the opportunity to fire on the space beagle. He decides to stay quiet, as the energy field around the ship should be adequate defense from exterior threats, and there's nothing he can say about the individual alien as a threat that would make any sense. Von Grossen, the head physicist, speaks up, stating that he thinks they should not continue the voyage for a week or a month until they have fully examined the creature with it safely suspended in space outside the ship. Chapter 15 The text says, Ixtel waited. His thoughts kept breaking up into kaleidoscopic memories of all the things he had ever known or thought. He had a vision of his home planet, long ago destroyed. The picture brought pride and a gathering contempt for these two-legged beings who actually expected to capture him. He could remember a time when his race could control the movement of entire sun systems through space. That was before they dispensed with space travel as such and moved on to a quieter existence, building beauty from natural forces in an ecstasy of prolonged creative production. The cage is successfully brought outside the force field and the alien is enclosed inside. He makes note of the two technicians' weapons, atomic missile launchers. While powerful out here, Ixtel knows they wouldn't dare use them inside, and inside is where he wants to be. Just holding a bar of the cage is a revelation. Quote, He was safe after quadrillions of years of despair. Safe on a material body. No matter what else happened, control of the energy source of this power-driven cage forever freed him from his past inability to direct his movements. He would never again be subject only to the pole, an equally feeble counterpole of remote galaxies. Henceforth, he could travel in any direction he desired. Unquote. Ixtil can feel the atoms in his body reacting to the metal. He examines the humans. They're quite small compared to him, and their spacesuits make it clear they can't survive out here on their own, their body's adaptability being less evolved than his. However, he knows better than to underestimate them. Quote, Here were keen brains, capable of creating and using mighty machines. And they had now brought up a number of those machines, evidently with the purpose of studying him. That would reveal his purpose, identify the precious objects concealed within his breast, and expose at least a few of his life processes. He could not allow such an examination to be made." Ixtel sees more weapons. All the men have a, vib a vibration gun. 
Using precise control over his atomic structure, he passes one long arm up through the roof of the cage, wraps his eight wire-like fingers around one such gun strapped to a technician's side, fires it, and then withdraws. It zaps a a camera and various other instruments that have been positioned around the cage as a makeshift laboratory, and everything will have to be reset after the accident. Grosvenor is one of those men outside in spacesuits who curse at the stinging vibration of the gunshot. They try to figure out what happened to set it off. Smith, the biologist, says he thought he saw the creature move right before, and they all turn to look at it. Quote, The almost metallic red sheen of the creature's cylindrical body, the eyes like coals of fire, the wire-like fingers and toes, and the overall scarlet hideousness of it startled Grosvenor. Unquote. He's probably very handsome, to himself, Seidel the psychologist jokes, and the tension eases. Director Morton wants to bring the creature on board where they can recreate the vacuum of space while also being back on their way. But von Grossen, the physicist, doesn't like having this suggestion to stay put ignored. Smith, the biologist, says they're bound to take the creature on board sooner or later. It's the most interesting thing they've come across, more resilient even than the coral. Everyone agrees that they will enclose the cage in a bit of force field and take it along. As the cage moves, Ixtel floats through the metal floor, having forgotten to rearrange his atoms after setting off the gun. He ends up standing on the outer hull of the ship, much to the human's shock as well as his own. The opportunity to act innocent and weak has passed. He leaps through the air air lock, phases through multiple doors, and ends up in a corridor. Quote, In the imminent struggle for control of the ship, he would have one important advantage, aside from his individual superiority. His opponents did not yet know the deadliness of his purpose. Unquote. Chapter 16 Twenty minutes later, the entire crew of the Space Beagle has been gathered for an emergency meeting. Military officers, ship crew, administrators, and scientists alike are here. Captain Leith starts the meeting by giving credit to the scientists for saving them all when... Uh, from these surprise situations in the past, rather than staying cooped up in their laboratories. Regardless of job titles, everyone now must arm himself against this new threat and prepare to fight to the death. Director Morton thanks the captain, then tells them all that it is no one's fault that the creature is on board. The plan to have the creature on board within a force field seems like it was a good one, but it slipped out of its cage before said field could be utilized. That being said, he wants to know if anyone had a premonition of this happening. His eyes specifically fall on Grosvenor, but even the Nexialist could not have predicted a creature that could pass through walls. The discussion is passed to Seidel the psychologist, who points out that the alien seems to have made a mistake in revealing its phasing uh, ability. Then Smith the biologist is called on, who makes note of the alien's planet-style hands and feet, along with its incredible ability to live in space. I suggest that here is a member of a race that has solved the final secrets of biology, he says, and if I knew how we should even begin to start looking for a creature that can escape from us through the nearest wall, my advice would be, hunt him down and kill him on sight. Kelly, the sociologist, speaks up, saying that a creature like this can live anywhere, should have infested the universe, but this singular being is the only one they've ever encountered, which points to a sort of paradox. uh, They must be ages ahead of humanity in development, and man has already come a long way in exploring the universe. So why aren't they everywhere? Director Morton asks Korita the archaeologist for an opinion, and the Japanese man says, 
You know the prevailing theory, that life proceeds upward, whatever we mean by upward, by a series of cycles. Each cycle begins with the peasant, who is rooted to his bit of soil. The peasant comes to market, and slowly the marketplace transforms into a town, with even less inward connection to the earth. Then we have cities and nations, finally the soulless world cities, and a devastating struggle for power, a series of frightful wars which sweep men to felidum, and so to primitiveness, and on to new peasanthood. The question is, is this creature in the peasant part of his particular cycle, or in the big city megalopolitan era? When asked how they can tell, Corita suggests that a near flawlessly executed plan would identify the alien as a big city entity at the peak of civilization, while a plan based on basic instincts would point to a peasant mindset. An example of the latter would be a drive towards reproduction and race survival above all else. Next, Director Morton asks for Grosvenor's perspective. Having come to believe that the Nexialist sciences, based on the wealth of knowledge across many fields, may be the key to good problem-solving. Grosvenor quickly states that he has a hypothesis regarding how they came across the creature, and ended up with a hole in the engine room at the same time. But he'll save it for later. Suddenly, before he can explain how to kill the monster, a bunch of men push their way into the room. The new arrivals are Pennons, the chief engineer, and his men returning to let everyone know that the walls of the bedrooms have been energized for everyone's protection, and each person should now wear a rubber tight, uh, a rubberite suit for safety. That's not all. Something is caught in the force field. Chapter 17 Ixtel was exploring the ship after deciding where he would secrete his ghouls when he went to pass through a wall and found it charged with electricity. It nearly pulls his atoms apart, and he is saved only by the incredible bioengineering of his forefathers, allowing him to fall backwards. He knows immediately that this must, be, must have sounded an alarm somewhere. Soon the humans would try to corner him, and it would be the perfect opportunity to catch one of them. The alien leaps through walls, room after room, until he's moving parallel to the men rushing down the corridor to where they think he's been caught. When one man falls slightly behind, Ixtel seizes his chance. Quote, like a wraith, he glided through the wall just ahead of the last man and pounced forth in an irresistible charge. He was a rearing, frightful monstrosity with glaring eyes and ghastly mouth. He reached out with his four fire-colored arms and with his immense strength clutched the human being. Unquote. He flings the man to the floor. Although Ixtel does not have ears, he has eyes to see the man's mouth opening and closing and feet that feel the vibrations in the air of a call for help. The alien smashes that mouth, then sinks his hand into the human's body while the man watches in frozen horror. The hands and their wire-like fingers phase through skin, bone, and organ alike in search of an open cavity where something could be stored without killing the man. Vibrations in the floor tell him that the other humans are getting close, and in his hurry, Ixtel accidentally returns a hand to semi-solidity and bumps the man's heart, killing him instantly. A moment later, Ixtel finds the stomach and intestines cursing himself for letting this living host die just as he found what he needs. Then again, this proves that the humans die easily and are less of a threat than he thought. Ixtel snarls at the approaching men, then disappears into the wall. The text says, His plan was quite clear now. He would capture half a dozen men and make ghouls of them. Then he would kill all the others, since they would not be necessary to him. That done, he could proceed on to the galaxy towards which the ship was evidently heading and there take control of the first inhabited planet. 
After that, domination of the entire reachable universe would be a matter of a short time only. Too far away to join the group, Grosvenor watches the men gather around the body through the viewport of a wall communicator. Director Morton and Dr. Eggert are there, and the doctor says that the man died of heart failure, of all things, despite the way his mouth was smashed in. Von Grossen the physicist and Smith the biologist chime in from a wall, uh, from wall communicators elsewhere and encourage everyone to stay alert and move on. This is no time to linger on each death. The Space Beagle is made up of 30 levels, totally uh, totaling around 2 miles of floor space. To energize the whole place would wreck it and kill everyone, so they can't do that. The walls are also as energized as they can be without melting. From somewhere else on the ship, Koita, the archaeologist, assures them that they aren't dealing with a true super-being since he did blunder into the electrified wall without passing through. If he is a being from the peasant stage of society, he will be very simplistic in his plans, thinking only of getting rid of the humans on board without any regard for how many humans exist in the galaxy, and focusing solely on being amongst people like him again. Corita says that an organized society can overcome a peasant community, so they should be able to prevail. Suddenly, Ixtel steps into view, right in the middle of the group. Chapter 18 Everyone is stunned. The alien's silent presence among several men feels surreal. To Grosvenor and the others on communicators, the humans seem puny compared to the blood-red monstrosity. Ixtel has sized the humans up and deemed them unworthy opponents fit to be toyed with. By creating a ghoul in their midst, he has demoralized them all. Director Morton speaks first, calmly telling the men not to fire. They can't beat the creature's speed, and Ixtel knows it. He orders that all the listening crews bring blasters to surround the area and corner the enemy. Captain Leith complies. Grosvenor is not part of the emergency crew, but he rushes towards the scene of the action. He needs to be closer for a better idea of what to do. He passes wall communicators and catches snippets of Corita, the archaeologist, warning the director not to put all of their hope in this one move when it is they who are scurrying about on the run without a clear objective. Down corridors and elevators, Grosvenor reaches the spot where the gathered men in Ixtel are. To everyone's shock, Von Grossen, the physicist, draws something and hands it to the alien, who accepts it and snarls. I've just shown him how we can defeat him, the physicist says, seemingly hoping to reason with the thing, but it doesn't work. Ixtel shoves the others aside and seizes the man with his wire-like fingers and squeezes him with forearms of hard muscle. No one is sure whether to use their vibrator guns and risk harming Von Grossen, so Grosvenor shouts, What did you show him? How can we defeat him? Before the physicist can try to answer, Ixtel phases through the wall, along with the man in his arms. The escape is successful, as there hadn't yet been time for Captain Leith's teams to surround the area with blasters. Every scientist and military officer is dismayed and frustrated by Von Grossen's distinctly egotistical, uncoordinated actions. When Morton asks if anyone has an idea what Von Grossen might have drawn on that piece of paper, Grosvenor steps forward. He suggests that the physicist must have chosen a universally recognizable symbol, probably an atom, specifically an atom from the type of metal used in the ship's outer hull. The men who were present during the alien's capture suddenly remember that although Ixtel phased through its cage by accident, it was stopped short by the hull of the ship because it is made of denser stuff he can't pass through. He even had to jump through the airlock to get inside the ship. Captain Leith concludes uh, from this that there is at least one safe place on board, the engine room. 
which is made of the same dense material. Everyone on board is commanded to stay near the engine room, as well as the energy-screened sleeping quarters, though no one is to sleep until the monster is defeated. Chapter 19 Grosvenor gathers with other men in the engine room, dwarfed by the enormous size of the machines and the atomic drive thrusting the space beagle across the dark gap between spiral galaxies. It's no surprise that this is the largest exploratory expedition ever, one that's now in great danger. Quote, This was no coral, whose overstimulated body had survived the murderous wars of the dead race that had performed biological experiments upon the animals of the cat planet. Nor could the danger from the rim folk be compared. The Scarlet Monster was clearly and unmistakably in a class by himself. Unquote. Captain Leith and Director Morton addressed the men, commenting on the incredible fact that the alien has only been on board for two hours. They ask Zeller, the new head of metallurgy, to speak. He explains that his team is working on making a spacesuit out of a dense material that Ick still can't phase through. But it will take about three hours, and they only have enough precious material for one suit right now. Morton thanks Zeller, and says that such a suit will make it possible to pursue the alien carrying von Grossen around. Since Ick still left behind the man he killed earlier, he seems to want his victims alive. As for how to kill the creature, there are two possible plans. Grosvenor the Nexialist's proposed plan will be kept as a last resort, considered too dangerous for human beings. The other plan was written by the physics team, and has had other suggestions incorporated. It will work only if Corita the archaeologist is correct, that the alien is from a peasant cycle of civilization, and won't fully grasp what an organized attack against him might look like. It doesn't realize it needs to kill all of the humans before they kill him. So, they will energize the floors of levels 7 through 9 and trap him there. Grosvenor speaks up a little hesitantly, not wanting to cause trouble, but stating that he thinks the plan is worthless. I understand the plan as described by you was not the one originally put forward, but a modified version of it, he says. What was taken out? They recommended energizing four levels, 7, 8, 9, and 10, Morton replies. That's better, Grosvenor says. A representative of the physics team explains that energizing four floors would take too long. If time was not a factor, they'd energize every floor of the ship. They don't want to give the alien any more chances to snatch people, and they want to give the captured man a chance at survival. Though people are getting antsy, Captain Leith admits he wants to hear the rest of Grosvenor's objections. The Nexialist points out that energizing walls and floors would make it make sense if they knew it would be 100% effective. But they can't actually be sure of that, since Ixtel already survived touching one once. The ship's greater force field, on the other hand, seems to be reliable since the creature waited outside until the cage was sent out to retrieve him. The problem is that energizing the walls or floors inside the ship to the same extent would cause them to fall apart, since they're not made of the same dense material. They're already maxed out. The specialists are growing disheartened and want to hear Grosvenor's alternative plan. Director Morton briefly summarizes it. Basically, groups would be stationed around the ship with atomic projectors while most of the crew were out of the way, and others acted as bait, who would likely die in the blast along with the alien. Afterward, the portion of the ship would be blocked off. The plan to fire atomic weapons inside is so outrageous that the men take a while to settle down and vote. Only 51 of nearly 900 people are in favor of the plan, just 14 are firmly against it, and the rest abstain from raising their hands. Grosvenor is disappointed by the lack of support, 
but the leaders decide that action must be taken soon, one way or the other. So the director announces that the atomic projector cannons, as well as several energized floors, will be utilized at the same time. The two project, uh, projects will give everyone on board something to keep them busy amidst the danger. In the meantime, Ixtil passes through the ship, passing through walls and narrowly escaping big vibrator guns that shake up his molecular structure. He watches the humans to see what plan they hatched while gathered uh, in that uh, protected engine room and is almost surprised by the simplicity of the energized floor trap. Surely they'll try something else once that fails. Ixtil is more concerned with his goal, to obtain more ghouls. He targets men with the largest stomach cavities. Quote, he made his preliminary survey, then launched himself. Before a single projector could be turned towards him, he was gone with the writhing, struggling body. It was simple to adjust his atomic structure the moment he was through a ceiling, and so break his fall to the floor beneath. Swiftly, he let himself dissolve through the fl that floor also, and down to the level below. Into the vast hold of the ship, he half fell, half lowered himself. He could have gone farther, but he had to be careful not to damage the human body." Unquote. At the back of the hold, behind storage boxes, there is a massive pipe that is part of the vast air conditioning network. The text says, His hiding place would have been dark by ordinary light, but to his infrared sensitive vision, a vague twilight glow suffused the pipe. He saw the body of von Grossen and laid his new victim beside it. Carefully then, he inserted one of his wiry hands into his own breast, removed a precious egg, and deposited it into the stomach of the human being. The man was still struggling, but Ixtel waited for what he knew must happen. Slowly, the body began to stiffen. The muscles grew progressively rigid. In panic, the man squirmed and jerked as he evidently recognized that paralysis was creeping over him. Remorselessly, Ixtel held him down until the chemical action was completed. In the end, the man lay motionless, every muscle rigid. His eyes were open and staring. There was sweat on his face. Within hours, the egg would be hatching inside each man's stomach. Swiftly, the tiny replicas of himself would eat themselves to full size. Satisfied, Ixtel darted up out of the hold. He needed more hatching places for his eggs, more ghouls. By the time Ixtel has a third man captured, more floors of the ship have been energized, and some of the atomic projectors are ready. Grosvenor can't help but shudder at the sight of the weapon that could tear him apart, but he's staying here with the other men to act as bait. Nearly every man on board is in the same position. Soon, all of the projectors are in place, and levels 7, 8, and 9 are set up as a trap zone. The weapons will be aimed at a certain height to give the men enough room on the floor to survive the blast and be treated later for secondary radiation if they drop to their bellies fast enough when the alien appears. Everyone is on, uh, so on edge that when Captain Leith calls for Grosvenor over the intercom, the Nexialist and everyone around him falls to the floor. Grosvenor gets painfully to his feet and heads down to level 7, where he's been summoned. He arrives to find a horrifying scene. One of the atomic projectors has been knocked over with its three handlers' charred bodies lying beside it. More than 20 men, including Director Morton, lay strewn about the corridor as medical workers rush in with stretchers, wearing protective suits. According to the captain, this disaster was the result of one man panicking and firing his vibrator gun at the sight of the alien, causing a chain reaction that resulted in many men stunned or dead. The survivors might end up bedbound for a year. Captain Leith and Grosvenor have to accept that element of surprise has been lost. Ixtel has witnessed an atomic cannon being fired, though not successfully. 
Whether or not he interferes directly with the cannons, the creature's goal still seems to match the archaeologist's hypothesis, that reproduction will mean more to him than anything else. It's unpleasant to think about what he's doing with the living victims he's carried down into the ship somewhere. Grosvenor seems to have a slightly different plan in mind, something more challenging to accept than placing atomic weapons throughout the ship, but he is still learning more and more that men often do, change, do not change their minds without seeing preferable plans fail. He recommends that they focus on energizing the trap floors and then put the cannons away. Chapter 20 Ixtel has six eggs left, and he plans to use four of them. Unfortunately, the human defenses are getting better, and it's getting harder to snatch ghouls. He has to avoid energized walls, and can only target cannon technicians to avoid ending up in the line of fire. Despite this annoyance, Ixtel doesn't take the threat seriously. He feels superior to these creatures, and will deal with them in due time. The energized floors are completed, the cannons are put away, and the assembled men on the ninth floor are addressed via intercom. Now that Director Morton has been injured, leadership has been turned over to Kent of the chemistry department for the time being. He passes the microphone to Kelly, the sociologist, and Lester, the astronomer. They bring up an idea from before, that a creature of such might as the Scarlet Monster should be crawling all over the universe, dominating everything with its scientific knowledge. Most of you know the prevailing theory of the beginnings of the present universe, they say. There is evidence to believe that it came into being as a result of the breakup of an earlier universe several million million years ago. It is believed today that a few million million years hence, our universe will complete its cycle and blow up in a cataclysmic explosion. With this in mind, the scientists suggest that their alien enemy did indeed dominate the last universe before being blasted into the oblivion of space by that explosion millions upon millions of years ago. Now it will do the same to this universe. For now, everyone has to assume this is the case. Just then, another man is snatched. The energized floors are activated, and Grosvenor is fascinated by the sparkling blue beneath the boots of his safety suit. Everyone heads out in an organized fashion to comb the floors where the monster should be trapped. But all they find is the lifeless, electrocuted body of the man he kidnapped. After checking the whole floor, they determine that Ixtel escaped the trap. Now what are we going to do? Chapter 21 There is a long silence before temporary director Kent speaks again, acknowledging that the alien can apparently pass through energized surfaces. In terms of individual safety, only one dense metal suit has been produced, and it will take a long time to synthesize enough metal to create a suit for everyone on board. They also have to keep in mind how intelligent this creature is, that they don't have enough time to energize the whole ship before it begins seriously considering its counterattack, possibly utilizing what he finds in the currently abandoned labs around the ship. Everyone is beginning to feel backed into a corner. Surely, <clears throat> sure they'll have to wait in the engine room until the monster comes to kill them. We mustn't forget we are dealing with a creature who seems to be in the peasant stage of his particular cycle, Corita the archaeologist says. To a peasant, his land and his son or, to use a higher level of abstraction, his property and his blood are sacred. He fights blindly against encroachment. Like a plant, he attaches himself to a piece of property, and there he sinks his roots and nourishes his blood. However, Corita isn't sure how this knowledge should be used to overcome the creature. While the departments go off to discuss the topic, Grosvenor speaks to Corita. Is this creature... <clears throat> if this creature is in the peasant stage of one of his civilizations, could he imagine our feeling differently about our property, he asks. 
Koita and Captain Leith, listening in, begin to see where Grosvenor is going with this question, and they all realize that there is another plan they can, they can try. So, when the department heads regroup, Grosvenor tells them what he wants to do, and they all see the logic in it, saying that their civilization can survive the steps necessary without a spiritual collapse. Smith, the biologist, adds that it's best they let the alien victims die, lest they suffer a truly terrible fate. He has worked out a theory that Ixtel might behave similarly to a terrifying wasp on Earth. Just then, a call comes in. Ixtel's stash of bodies has been discovered in the hold of the ship. All scientists and their staffs proceed to the airlocks, Captain Leith orders. We probably won't be able to corner him or kill him in the hold, but gentlemen, we're going to get rid of this monster, and we're going to do so at any cost. We can no longer consider ourselves. Soon after, Ixtel watches his ghouls get carried off, and he begins to realize defeat is a real possibility, unable to simply attack when those atomic cannons are aimed his way. Down to four eggs, certain the others would be destroyed, Ixtel is astonished that until now he thought only of reproduction, when he should have been killing everyone on board. He heads to the nearest laboratory to make a weapon. As he works, Ixtel realizes that the engines have stopped. A sense of dread fills him, and Ixtel then senses that not only the vibration of the engines has stopped, but also that of all life on board. All at once, he knows that to stay here means death. Quote, Through deserted corridors he fled, slavering hate, a scarlet monster from ancient, ancient galore. Unquote. Ixtel makes it through an airlock and looks back to see the otherworldly blue glow through every porthole that denotes an atomic attack. As if, as it fades, a dozen lifeboats return to the ship and it vanishes, leaving the failed conqueror alone in the dark to wallow in his mistakes. Back on board the ship, Grosvenor watches as the Ixtel eggs are extracted from the stomachs of the captured men. They are round and gray, and one of them is beginning to crack. Quote, Several men stood by with drawn heat blasters as the crack widened. An ugly, round, scarlet head with tiny beady eyes and a tiny slit of a mouth poked out. The head twisted on its short neck, and the eyes glittered up at them with hard ferocity. With a swiftness that almost took them by surprise, the creature reared up and tried to climb out of the vat. The smooth walls defeated it, it slid back, and dissolved in the flame that was poured down upon it. Unquote. Once the eggs are removed, the men who hosted them begin to come out of a state of paralysis. That, plus the fact that some men saw a red flash leave one of the airlocks, and a sweep of the ship has come up with nothing, makes everyone feel like they're actually going to be alright. That being said, they are still disturbed, their cost <clears throat> dis disturbed by their costly experience. Pennons, the engineer, discovered Ixtel's unfinished weapon in the physics lab, which will take some time to determine the exact purpose of. He's exhausted from sleep deprivation, as well as the thought of months of work it'll take to repair the ship after only three minutes of uncontrolled energization put through it. Grosvenor's plan was incredibly dangerous. If the ship had been fully destroyed, they all would have been stranded in the lifeboats without sufficient anti-acceleration to escape the depths of intergalactic space. Someone wonders aloud whether Ixtel would have succeeded in taking over the galaxy with so many stubborn humans around. It dominated once, it could do it again, says Smith the biologist. You assume far too readily that man is a paragon of justice, forgetting, apparently, that he has a long and savage history. He has killed other animals not only for meat but for pleasure. He has enslaved his neighbors, murdered his opponents, and obtained the most unholy sadistic joy from the agony of others. 
It is not impossible that we shall, in the course of our travels, meet other intelligent creatures far more worthy than man to rule the universe. Everyone agrees that they'll try not to let any more dangerous-looking creatures on board. Part 4. M33 in Andromeda. Chapter 22. Alone in his workroom, with no one else in the five rooms of the Nexialism department, Grosvenor hears a voice in his ear. He looks around, but none of his instruments are out of place, and he can't think of anything long-range enough to affect him from outside these rooms. Grosvenor tries to return to his studies of rim hypnotic imagery, but he is struck with a profound sense of fear and hears the angry voice again. In search of a culprit, he calls up Seidel in the psychology department. I was just about to call, uh, contact you, Seidel says. I thought you might be responsible. He explains that he's been receiving complaints for the last 20 minutes, and he's surprised the disturbing signal made it into the shielded Nexialism department. And the psychology department's instruments started picking up the signal before that. Seidel warns Grosvenor to be careful leaving his workroom, since the voice and hallucinations are much stronger everywhere else. Kent, head of chemistry, is still situated as active director, having been appointed as Morton's second as a gesture of peace some time ago. He calls a meeting, and everyone gathers uneasily. Quote, The night whispered, the immense night of space that pressed against the hurtling ship. Capricious and deadly, it beckoned and it warned. It trilled with frenzied delight, then hissed with savage frustration. It muttered in fear and growled in hunger. It died, reveling in agony, and burgeoned again into ecstatic life. Yet always and insidiously, it threatened. Unquote. Someone says they should turn around and go home. The men aboard the Space Beagle are sure these terrible signals are coming from the M33 galaxy they are now entering, which is a satellite of the Andromeda galaxy. But is it possible for a frequency like this to envelop a whole galaxy? Is it focused on the ship? Kent asks the room for opinions. Unfortunately, it is well known that acting director Kent is not fond of opinions coming from other department heads, especially not the Nexialism department. He had, has been slowly increasing the amount of authority held by his post, and efficiency has been prioritized over the sharing of ideas. Grosvenor is displeased with the trend, worried for its effect on overall morale. When no one speaks up, Grosvenor says that he would like whoever it was who thought the ship should go home to explain themselves. No one speaks up. In fact, several men say they heard no such thing. So, Grosvenor shrugs and suggests it was a hallucination. Perhaps whatever is making the terrible signal wants them to leave. Director Kent asks why such a message could be, uh, would be directed at just one man, and Grosvenor can only hypothesize that his interactions with the telepathic rim have left him more sensitive than others. After all, he did hear the signal despite being in his shielded office. Kent doesn't like this response any more than he likes Grosvenor speaking up in the first place. The director prefers not to think of that ugly incident, what the Rim's attempts at communication caused the crew to do to each other. He presses Grosvenor, his tone suggesting that the Nexialist is either seeking attention or just crazy. And Grosvenor is in turn, uh, Grosvenor in turn points out that they should be discussing what to do rather than debating the tiny details about this possible alien communication. McCann, the geologist, agrees. Regardless of details, they seem to uh, have entered the territory of something. Director Kent hesitates, but moves on to prioritizing this point. Assuming that they're dealing with a sentient being, rather, uh, sentient being larger than they've ever encountered. Kelly, the sociologist, suggests that what they're experiencing could be the whispered radio static of an unclear signal. 
Remember, man has also left his imperishable imprint on his own galaxy, Kelly says. In the process of rejuvenating dead suns, he has lighted fires in the form of novae that will be seen a dozen galaxies away. Planets have been led from their orbits. Dead worlds have come alive with verdure. Oceans now swirl where deserts lay lifeless under suns hotter than Sol. And even our presence here in this great ship is an emanation of man's power, reaching out farther than these whispers around us have ever been able to go. Gorley, head of communications, says that these emanations are different from what humans put out. They're alive, strong, and pervasive. This conversation is interrupted as everyone is startled by the materialization of 30-foot, red-eyed, devil-faced, armored beasts, one after another, until there are a dozen of them. They fall to vibrator pistol blasts as men everywhere open fire. Meanwhile, Grosvenor climbs over rows of seats to reach the ship's instrument board, knocking Kent aside as he does so when the director tries to stop him. The Nexialist reaches the switch to turn on the ship's energy field, throwing himself to the floor just as Kent retrieves his pistol and fires on him. Just as quickly, the director stops and says, I didn't realize what you were trying to do, and the two of them return to helping the others stun and kill the monsters. Grosvenor is upset by more than the dead beasts that were teleported alive across light years of space, though the energy screen will prevent any more of them from appearing. He has tolerated Kent's bad attitude for months, but now it is clear that the chemist is willing to kill Grosvenor if the opportunity arises. That man is too rash to be fit for office. Chapter 23 The armored creatures only appeared in the control room. No others are found on board. No enemy ships are located outside. The nearest star is a thousand light years away. That's farther than the Space Beagle is capable of sending a basic transit message, let alone physical objects. Captain Leith calls a council of war immediately to discuss the hostile galactic civilization they have encountered and why they are being warned away. Smith the biologist says the creature's brains are very small, unintelligent. Gorley, the communications expert, suggests this may be an expansion on and a manipulation of a particular spatial phenomenon. Corita, the archaeologist, has nothing to offer without knowing the reason for this attack, be it to seize the ship or scare them away. Captain Leith then wonders if the entity's goal is to learn where they came from. He suggests they examine the nearest planetary systems. Director Kent tries to end the meeting even though Grosvenor asks to speak and only allows the Nexialist a chance to do so when everyone remains seated. It is hard to believe that this being will be capable of refined interpretation of our symbols, Grosvenor says, but I think we should destroy our star maps. Von Grossen, this physicist, enthusiastically agrees, having had the same thought, and others join in. Grosvenor continues that to prevent further mind probing from this unknown entity, they should have some large encephalo adjusters on hand to fight back with. He finishes by saying it might be wise for the department heads to survey their materials and determine if anything should be destroyed, lest it be used against them if the ship were captured. This is followed by a chilled, fearful silence. The Space Beagle begins visiting local planetary systems, each picked apart by the astronomers. They fly low in search of signs of civilization. They see marshes, seas, jungles, ancient lumbering beasts, burning hellscapes, and so on. Finally, they come across three planets that have been purposefully moved and artificially adjusted so that they are identical. The astronomer who presents this data proposes that the ship land to investigate further. Director Kent says the opposite, that they should continue survey surveying planets. Grosvenor can see that Kent chose to oppose the astronomer's plan largely to make himself look, look more democratic, 
allowing the crew to make the choice to go. Vergrovner actually feels that they haven't seen enough solar systems and votes in Kent's favor, much to the director's shock. After Grosvenor provides his reasoning for visiting at least 30 systems before they stop, the astronomer withdraws his proposal in agreement. McCann, the geologist, invites Grosvenor to his department once the meeting adjourns, and the Nexialist agrees to visit in the morning after finishing his recommendations for Director Kent. McCann's reaction makes it clear that the others have noticed Kent's distinct dislike for Grosvenor. So, Grosvenor asks for the older man's opinion on Kent as a leader, and McCann says that the head chemist appeals to people as a human being with clear flaws. Men like him for the simple fact that he is a man like them. If the job of director were more important, McCann would care more about whether Kent was really qualified. But as it is, it's good enough that Kent is a good scientist. I disagree with you about the director's job not being vital, Grosvenor says. It all depends on the individual as to how he ex- exercises the very considerable authority involved. Strictly logical men like you have always had a hard time understanding the mass appeal of the Kents, the geologist says. Suppose you decided that Kent ought to be ousted. What would you do? McCann is glad that Grosvenor doesn't seem to have such thoughts yet. You are potentially the most dangerous man on this ship, he says, giving the younger man's arm a friendly squeeze. The integrated knowledge you have in your mind, applied with determination and purpose, could be more disastrous than any outside attack. One man is too easy to kill, Grosvenor says, denying the charges. I notice you don't deny possessing the knowledge, McCann comments before they part ways. Chapter 24 The Space Beagle passes over its 31st planet, surveying the land using geology instruments with Nexialist tweaks. Grosvenor accompanies McCann's men in interpreting the data and sounds the alarm when steel is detected. Not just iron ore, but steel indicates civilization at one time or another. Using remote-controlled machines they are, that are lowered to the planet's jungle surface, the geologists excavate the area. What they unearth is a city that looks as if it had been crushed from above. Smashed skeletons also point to this. Further investigation reveals that this planet is not so young and primitive as it looks. A layer of jungle mud was skimmed off another astral body and used to cover this one. It seems like this was dumped straight on top of the land and civilization that existed there, causing destruction and death by weight and pressure. While McCann and Director Kent can only wonder about what entity would do such a thing, this discovery gives Grosvenor the pieces to a puzzle he's been putting together for some time. Quote, He knew the identity of the most monstrous alien intelligence conceivable. He could guess its terrible purpose. He had carefully analyzed what must be done. Unquote. However, he cannot implement the necessary plans without controversy that will waste precious time. He has no choice but to do whatever he has to do. Chapter 25 Grosvenor sends a polite letter to the director's office asking Kent to call a meeting so the Nexialist can outline what the ship is up against and what action needs to be taken. The next day, he gets a letter back saying he should fill out the attached form, expressing surprise that he had not done so properly already. So, Grosvenor fills out the form. Quote, He only listed the evidence. He did not interpret it, nor did he offer his solution. Under the heading, Recommendations, he wrote, The conclusion will be instantly obvious to any qualified person. The titanic fact was that every item of evidence he had presented was known to one or another of the various science departments aboard the Space Beagle. The accumulated data had probably been on Kent's desk for weeks. Unquote. He delivers the form in person. 
Then Grosvenor stays in his department for two days until the reply comes. It asks him to please fully state his recommendations, signed personally by Acting Director Kent. Hoping for this, Grosvenor takes a drug that causes his body to imitate the flu, and he writes to the director's office that he is too sick to write out the full recommendation, concluding with, It might be wise to start immediately on the preliminary propaganda in order to accustom the members of the expedition to the notion of spending an extra five years in space. Just as Dr. Eggert arrives to take a look at Grosvenor, Kent and two of his staff burst in. The director is impatient, but the doctor refuses to jump to conclusions, saying he can't be sure what type of bug Grosvenor has managed to make uh, has that has managed to make its way onto the space beagle. We'll have to take the risk, Kent says. Mr. Grosvenor is in possession of valuable information, and I feel sure he is strong enough to give it. The doctor disagrees, but says Kent and his men can stay until Dr. Eggert returns with his assistant. Alone with Grosvenor, Kent confronts him, insisting the Nexialist give his recommendation and information immediately. Grosvenor calmly lays out the facts, that he knew the chemist-slash-director would respond to properly submitted suggestions the way he did, and would not gather the department heads without being pushed to do so. Kent slaps Grosvenor across the face, furious. Though genuinely surprised, Grosvenor uses the opportunity to touch his his sore cheek to slip an antidote pill into his mouth. What do you really want? Kent demands. And Grosvenor requests that the men be told that they will have to stay in space for five years longer than planned due to the alien entity they have encountered. Once that has been announced, he will explain further. Though Kent continues to push back, Grosvenor points out that the director's presence indicates he believes there is some merit to the Nexialist's plan. Kent's henchmen, on the other hand, aren't buying it and encourage Kent to squeeze Grosvenor. But when they try to lock the door, Grosvenor warns it will set off alarms. When they get close to uh, put their hands on him, Grosvenor explains the electric shock weapon he has on him. When Kent loses patience and fires his vibrator gun on a low setting, it backfires and clings to his hand in electric agony due to wall plates in the room. Burned and tense, Kent leaves with his men. This will cost you dearly, he snarls, when the others find out that one man is trying to force his ideas. Afterward, Grosvenor goes through the tiresome process of convincing the doctor he is no longer sick. They still recommend he stay in for a few days, and Grosvenor heartily agrees, knowing that, quote, the Nexialist department would be his fortress, unquote. An hour later, he receives word that he will speak to the gathered department heads via the communicator. When the time comes, Grosvenor tunes his communicator to the control room. He sees a room full of faces, and he knows that they see his face, ten feet tall. Gentlemen, he says, about a week ago, I had enough evidence to justify this ship's taking action against the alien intelligence of this galaxy. That may seem like a tremendous statement, and it is an unfortunate fact that I can merely give you my interpretation of the available evidence. I cannot prove to everyone present that such a being does actually exist. Some of you will realize that my reasoning is sound. Others, lacking knowledge of certain sciences, will feel that the conclusions are distinctly controversial. I have racked my brain over the problem of how to convince you that my solution is the only safe one. Telling you what experiments I made happens to be one of the steps which it seems reasonable to take. Grosvenor diplomatically leaves out what he had to do to get a hearing, instead asking department heads to explain things. Gorley, chief communications officer, explains a device activated when the density of dust outside the ship reaches a point where it could be dangerous to move through. Von Grossen, the physicist, says the composition of the dust is odd and changes too much when collected to determine its origin. 
When samples were analyzed by the biology, chemistry, and physics departments, it was found that the dust doesn't change significantly when introduced to the ship's atmosphere, to lab animals, or to people. What Grosvenor found was that when a dead lab animal was placed in air with the dust, there was a slightly increased electric charge. I suppose we're expected to jump to the conclusion that we're dealing with a nebular dust intelligence, someone says. That's too much for me to swallow. Privately, Grosvenor knows that he's asking the men to accept an even more far-fetched idea than that. Aloud, he expresses his disappointment in everyone for not seeing the point. And since they can't figure it out, it falls on Grosvenor to tell them. But then it will be up to a group vote whether they believe him enough to do what is necessary. Despite nasty comments from Director Kent, Grosvenor implores the gathered scientists to accept his proposed plan without having everything spelled out for them. There is simply no time for squabbling or going over every tiny piece of evidence to piece the picture together. Quickly, he summarizes the danger and what they are to do about it, just as quickly moving on to the next steps. Finding planets with iron to begin production on atomic torpedoes, launching those torpedoes randomly throughout this sector of space, then leaving and seeing if the entity makes chase. They will then spend their time making sure they don't lead the malicious force back to their home sun soul or the Milky Way galaxy. It will take five Earth years, or three in star time. As a quick note, I think it's interesting that pretty much all sci-fi authors refer to Earth's sun as soul. It's a nice bit of consistency. Reactions are mixed. Some scientists are hesitant to spend so much time working on something with so little obvious payoff. How will they know it's working? Others point out that they may be partially at fault for not attending any Nexialism lectures and learning what Grosvenor eagerly wants to teach them. The timetable for the project is daunting. Director Kent feels that he is close to triumphing and calls a vote. Not a single person is in favor of Grosvenor's plan, some saying they want time to think about it. When another vote is called for those definitely against the plan, all but three hands are raised. Only Corita the archaeologist, McCann the geologist, and Von Grossen the physicist, oh, and Captain Leith, are still open to it. Captain, this is surely a moment when your constitutional right to take over the ship would apply. The danger is obvious. Mr. Grosvenor, Leith replies, that would be true if there were a visible enemy. As it is, I can act only on the advice of the scientific experts. There is only one such expert aboard, Grosvenor says, disappointed and angry. The others are a handful of amateurs who dabble around on the surface of things. Everyone is stunned by the remark, not only by its cruelty and frankness, but by Grosvenor's uncharacteristic use of meanness. Only Kent is pleased. Well, gentlemen, we now have Mr. Grosvenor's true opinion of us, he says. Some of his supporters push for Kent to punish such insolence. That's right, Grosvenor says, stand up for your rights. The whole universe is in deadly danger, but your sense of dignity must be maintained. A few more people speak, including Corita, who expresses disappointment in Grosvenor for saying such things. However, Grosvenor is steeled against such remarks. Having done all he can and still been turned away by the men's hesitance to spend five more years in space, the time has come for an ultimatum. Grosvenor tells them that tomorrow afternoon he will take control of the ship, and there's nothing they can do to stop him. Chapter 26 After the meeting, McCann the geologist comes to visit the Nexialism department though he calls first to make sure he won't set off any booby traps. Suppose I came with the secret intention of, in of assassinating you, he asks. Here in my rooms, Grosvenor replies cheerfully, you couldn't even kill me with a club. The geologist's approach sets off the corridor sensors, and Grosvenor makes sure the defense system lets him through. 
McCann is horrified when Grosvenor's instruments detect a bomb on him and learns that when he asked Kent for permission to come over here, that the chemist drugged him and planted the thing on him. The bomb is disposed of and McCann is badly shaken. Any trust he had in Kent's ability to lead, now gone. The bomb is followed by an attack on the department that the two men watch via view screens. It's a large group of physicists, chemists, and communications officers with a few military personnel, and quite a few weapons. McCann is surprised to see von Grossen among them, since the physicist admires this Nexialist, but Grosvenor knows he insulted von Grossen along with everyone else with his amateur comment. As the attack team approaches, McCann asks Grosvenor why he's acted so unethically. McCann and others support him, but not his tactics. Grosvenor admits that the only alternative at this point would be to run against Kent in an election, which would involve even more unethical control methods as well as wasting a month of time while the evil entity outside closes in. He's acting out of fear as much as necessity. McCann is endlessly surprised by Grosvenor's responses. Does he expect all of humanity to become Nexialists? And Grosvenor says that it is a necessity for the men aboard this ship. Every man should strive to know as much as he can. After meeting Corita the archaeologist, Grosvenor began to wonder if it was possible to break the civilization cycle to elevate mankind beyond constant growth and decay that is constant across races and blood relations. Just then, McCann realizes they haven't heard from their attackers yet, and he goes to see what's happening. The men are all on their knees. They're trying to keep from falling through the floor, Grosvenor says with a hint of pleasure. Having had more time to work in preparation for this situation than he did with the Pussycat or the Scarlet Monster, he's been able to rig up a myriad of devices, traps, and tricks that include particle destabilizers. Chapter 27 The tricks continue. To get over the floor that seems to be collapsing, the attackers bring in hover sleds to carry their weapons, but are repelled by magnetic walls around the Nexialism department. When they try to use a blaster on the door, some instruments Grosvenor set up change the heat process in the device and freeze the blaster itself. Not wanting the attackers to hurt themselves, Grosvenor shows McCann a device with 25 rows of 25 keys that uses crystals to influence the human mind. He produces sounds that make McCann picture a rousing political rally or feel as sleepy as a child at bedtime. The two men put on headsets to protect themselves, and a bell sound is played through the corridors on a loop, sending the attackers to sleep. Then Grosvenor invites McCann to accompany him past the hundreds of sleeping men throughout the ship down to the engine room to install a circuit breaker in the main system of the ship. It astounds McCann that people are so helpless. The next day, Grosvenor is still considered the enemy, so he flips a switch and sets the lights to flashing in a rim-style pattern. Everyone on board is quickly hypnotized and fed fe feelings of courage, sacrifice, duty, and time passing quickly. They are given a cue word that they will respond to then induced amnesia that will prevent them from remembering the hypnotism. Grosvenor then removes the circuit breaker, wakes everyone up, and withdraws his ultimatum, simply asking for a meeting. The change of minds has already taken place, and everyone, even Kent, begrudgingly, admits what has to be done. Quote, the great battle between man and alien was about to begin. Unquote. Chapter 28. Here's what the text says. The Anubis existed in an immense, suffused, formless state spread through all the space of the second galaxy. It writhed a little, feebly, in a billion portions of its body, shrinking with automatic adjustment away from the destroying heat and radiation of 200 billion blazing suns. 
but it pressed tightly down against the myriad planets and strained with a feverish, insatiable hunger around the quadrillion tingling points where were dying the animals that gave it life. It was not enough. The dread knowledge of an imminent starvation seeped to the farthest reaches of its body. Through all the countless, tenuous cells of its structure came messages from near and far, proclaiming that there was not enough food. For long now, the cells had had to do with less. Slowly, the Anubis had come to realize that it was either too big or too small. It had made a fatal mistake in growing with such abandon during its early days. In those years, the future had seemed limitless. The galactic space, where its form could wax ever huger, had appeared an, of endless extent. It had expanded with all the vaunting, joyous excitement of a low-born organism grown conscious of stupendous destiny. It was low-born. In the dim beginning, it had been only gas oozing from a mist-covered swamp. It was an odorless, tasteless, colorless gas. Yet somehow, someway, a dynamic combination was struck, and there was life. At first, it was nothing but a puff of invisible mist. Ardently, it darted over the muggy, muddy waters that had spawned it, twisting, diving, pursuing incessantly, and with a gathering alertness, a gathering need, striving to be present while something, anything, was being killed. For the death of others was its life. For Not for it was the knowledge that the process by which it, was, uh, by which it survived was one of the most intricate that had ever been produced by a natural life chemistry. Its interest was in pleasure and exhilaration, not in information. What a joy it felt when it was able to swoop over two insects as they buzzed in a furious death struggle, envelop them, and wait, trembling in every gassy atom for the life force of the defeated to spray with tingling effect against its own insubstantial elements. The entity learned the life and death patterns of every animal and insect, sometimes acting as a breeze to blow them to their doom. Then it expanded beyond the swamp and grew very fast when it found great armored beasts to battle and release their life energy, engulfing a whole jungle. Fed by sunlight and death, the Anubis kept on growing, absorbing food and knowledge. Within two days it had reached another planet, and soon it was enveloped. It had enveloped the entire M33 galaxy. Only then did it reach a wall of nothingness that it could not cross. For a time, the intelligence of the Anubis was limited by the simple animals it consumed. But that changed when it came across intelligent life. It learned to teleport, to move planets, to turn them into jungles where the cycle of death was fastest. But despite all this knowledge, the Anubis couldn't strike a balance and kept growing until it began to starve. The arrival of the intergalactic ship was a symbol of hope. Having deduced this, the men aboard the Space Beagle have found a solid iron planet to mine. Machines build torpedoes that are launched into space, and then more machines to do the same. Hundreds of thousands of torpedoes are manufactured and launched every minute. Carefully designed to stay within the M33 galaxy without getting too near a sun or planetoid, they would release destructive matter into space. When the Iron Planet is re uh, ready to be left behind to do its automated work, the ship is pointed towards a star system in a galaxy 900 million light-years away. We all understand we are not going to this remote star system, Grosvenor says. It would take us centuries, perhaps thousands of years, to reach it. All we want is to get this inimical life form out where he will starve. We'll be able to tell if he's following us by the murmurings of his thoughts, and we'll know he's dead when the murmurings stop. As time passes, the ship settles into a new rhythm, 
and Grosvenor finds that his lectures have more and more attendees, including the ever-hesitant Kent and the chemistry department. The end. So, what did you think about The Voyage of the Space Beagle? This is definitely a War of the Worlds-style classic. Though none of the aliens featured actually invade Earth, most of them are deceitful and inherently evil. The fact that Van Vogt narrates these creatures' thoughts indicates that he thought of them as being evil in the same way a hornet is, driven by biological instincts, and therefore not the devil in the sense of wishing harm on others only for the sake of it, but because survival above and before other entities is all they really know. Three of the four aliens act as invasive species, hoping to feed on or push out other life forms to make way for themselves. For this reason, the corals are left to starve on a dying world, the single remaining Ixtal is left floating in space, and the Anubis swamp-turned-galaxy cloud is bombed. It can be hard to follow the exact timeline of these stories, but generally the threat comes on fast, and the humans have to make quick, smart decisions to avoid destruction. Once the threat is passed, they usually decide to leave the offensive entity alone to its personal fate, rather than pursue revenge. There are four alien species encountered by expedition ship Space Beagle. Coral, Rim, Ixtal, and the Anubis. Though one or two are more popular than the others, all of them pose a threat to the men aboard the intergalactic ship and have detailed histories that brought them to this point. Three of the four are actively hostile. Uh, they are interesting enemies in that, though terrifying because of their strength, abilities, and ambition, they are not perfect. <laughs> the ones who try, uh, the ones who tr uh, try, make many mistakes while infiltrating the human ship. Since the text switches between their perspective and Grosvenor's, we get a window into their regret and anger every time there's a misstep. For example, Coral doesn't want to reveal his strength and power too quickly, yet he keeps getting spooked. After a hundred years alone, he's lost his edge, and it takes practice to get the cunning back. Similarly, Ixtal has been floating alone for who knows how long, and has to relearn how to be in precise control of his atoms. The two are easily uh, easy to dislike for their very simplistic, villainous motive to dominate another world, or the whole universe, but they're sympathetic in their bumbling attempts to do so. Their plans to find the human's home planet or galaxy aren't perfectly laid out, not perfect, nor perfectly executed. The Anubis behaves similarly, though we get less time with it than the others, in that it wants to use the space beagle to reach another galaxy and uh, further expand, but isn't quite smart enough to do anything but try to scare the humans into running home so it can follow, not realizing they might mislead it. It actually reminds me of the carnivorous swamp matter from the short film called The Raft, based on Stephen King's short story. <laughs> uh, in a different way, the planet of Rim makes a lot of mistakes, bungling their attempt to make friendly contact and stimulating human brains in a way that induces violent hallucinations. Moving on, what do these creatures look like? As I said during the introduction, I do not own a copy of The Voyage of the Space Beagle with a good cover, so it's impossible for us to play our favorite game, Did the Cover Artist Read the Book? <laughs> what I do have is my old copy of Barlow's Guide to Extraterrestrials, which has illustrations of two of the alien creatures from this book. This is notable because I don't think anyone has ever attempted to draw the rim before, and I think Barlow's version of Ixtil is the most accurate interpretation I've seen. In fact, Barlow says in the introduction to the book that he and Ian Summers, who helped him write the text, set out to choose alien creatures that are not only based in science and logic, so they seem like they could exist, 
but also might not have been illustrated before. I think they struck a good balance, as there are a lot of creatures in here I've seen, uh, I've never seen on a cover, while others that I have are drawn with more attention to interesting little details. The end of the book has scans from Barlow's sketchbook showing the range of movement these creatures would have in their bodies and limbs and mouths, showing how dedicated Barlow was to making their musculature look believable. I'm sure having Summers there to dissect and break down the descriptions helped. They both needed to sum up these creatures in a cohesive way. I will mention here that Barlow did illustrate a similar entity to Van Vogt's Anibis, that being the Black Cloud from Fred Hoyle's The Black Cloud. Both of these vast intelligences bear a certain resemblance to dark matter, except conscious. Let's give the Rim some love and see what Barlow's guide has to say about them. Physical Characteristics The Rim are erect, bipedal, bird-like entities with vestigial wings. Their heads and wrists sport tufts of golden feathers. They have narrow shoulders and short arms, but extremely long hands and fingers. The head has two wide-spaced eyes set over a short beak. A faint tracery of veins on the face gives the impression of a nose and cheeks to a human viewer, although the rim have neither. The rim reproduce parthenogenically, the offspring growing out of the body of the parent until it's mature enough to separate completely. The rim are telepathic and can project uh, illusions into the minds of non-telepathic beings. Habitat The rim inhabit an Earth-like planet with slightly lower gravity. Their cities are composed of huge, dark buildings that have an internal network of catwalks and roosting platforms. Some rim live on agricultural land, producing food for themselves and the city dwellers. Culture The rim society is in essence a telepathic group mind. Each individual is an intimate part of the race as a whole. I'd say that's a pretty good summary of what we know about the Rim, based on Grosvenor's observations when he projected, uh, projected himself back into their group mind. The picture accompanying this text is pretty spectacular. Barlow chose vibrant colors, so the Rim featured has big bird yellow feathers and skin, bright red eyes, a slightly darkened beak, black bird's feet, and an electric blue tunic. Seeing as Space Beagle doesn't have a very long description of the creatures, I'd say Mr. Barlow did an excellent job making up for the parts that weren't said. The tunic has an abstract geometric pattern added to the bottom and the wrists, with interesting scalloped hemming. Uh, I think maybe in the book it would be a bit, the it would be a bit longer because uh, their feet aren't really mentioned. Um, but Barlow also mentioned uh, also added a sweeping back to make room for those useless wings that were mentioned. It really took the idea about long hands and fingers to heart. <laughs> the wrist is about level with the creature's hip, then the finger knuckles start down by its knees. In the sketchbook portion of the guide, he also included a drawing of the rim's parthenogenesis. I appreciate this because there are two main images that were projected into humans' minds. One of the slightly feminine-looking rim, and one of the parent-child parthenogenesis. Having the guide here helped me visualize these things. Now let's look at Ixtal. Physical Characteristics The Ixtal has a long cylindrical body with four arms and four legs. The limbs terminate in hands and feet with eight long, wire-like fingers. The body is an even, metallic red. The Ixtal's head is round, set on a short, thick neck. It has a long, gash-like mouth and two red, glowing eyes. The being has complete control over a vast web of force emanating from its body, as well as over the atoms of its body. It can change its structure and solidity at will, passing through solid matter as easily as through air. 
the Axtol feeds on energy and drops to a lower level of life force when deprived of sufficient amounts. The Axtol can survive in any environment, even the depths of intergalactic space, for unlimited amounts of time. It can be killed only by a force such as an atomic explosion, which suddenly and completely dissolves the binding energy of the atoms in its body. Habitat the Ixtal evolved on the planet Glor and made it the center of an uh, interstellar empire. Billions of years ago, Glor was destroyed by a massive atomic attack, and only one of the Ixtal is known to have survived. Reproduction The Ixtal reproduce by laying eggs in the body cavity of a living host. Within six hours of implantation, the eggs hatch, and the young Ixtal eat their way out of the host body. The nourishment from this flesh allows the young to grow until they develop their force field and can absorb energy directly. These eggs can live dormant for long periods of time until an appropriate host is found. The Ixtal encountered by a Terran ship had been carrying six eggs for billions of years, and they proved viable when introduced to a human host. I have two corrections to make to this description. One is that the explosion that killed off the Ixtal race was actually the implosion of the universe as a whole, not an atomic attack. At least that's what the scientists aboard the Space Beagle conclude. And two is that the Ixtal was carrying, I believe, eight eggs rather than just six. The picture of Ixtal is pretty spectacular as well. <laughs> he is so very red and cylindrical, uh, two things that are were frequently mentioned. He is painted so that it appears he is made of pure fleshless muscle. That seems appropriate since the humans find the alien incredibly ugly when they encounter him. Barlow chose to draw the forearms and forelegs with short upper parts with a much longer part uh, of the limb below the elbow or knee uh, without much in the way of shoulders or hips. They fan out from the body symmetrically rather than being stacked on top of each other. Each ends in an arrow-shaped palm with the eight wire-like fingers extending out. The very round head with its slit of a mouth and flat, glowing eyes, uh, glowing red eyes, sits on a thick, wrinkled neck. The only critique I have is that in chapter 21, it is mentioned that Ixtal's fingers are black. Barlow also drew a picture of Ixtal's gray egg cracking, ready to hatch, and sketches of Ixtal are included in the back. They show the creature making a huge leap, which makes its weird tube-shaped body look less ridiculous and a little more scary. Uh, there's also a picture of the monster with its mouth open. Uh, it also is more intimidating than the image of it just standing there. On the size comparison chart, you can see just how big Ixtil is compared to a human. Almost, almost three times as tall. Very quickly, I will say that the illustration of the egg reminds me that Ixtil's planting eggs in humans is his biggest similarity with the xenomorphs from the Alien movies. Though the eggs are removed from their living hosts on time... Uh, the implication is that they would hatch and a little creature would eat its way out to the surface, just like the classic chestburster scene from Alien 1979. In the case of the Space Beagle, they're a lot more successful at defeating the unkillable creature and saving the hosts. The biggest difference between the two creatures is, besides their color and shape, their lifespan. Ixtil is, an, is as old as our current universe, while xenomorphs don't live very long, save for the queen. Moving away from Barlow's guide, I love the various art, uh, artist interpretations out there for the alien creatures from Space Beagle. I would love to have a collection of those volumes for my own enjoyment, so I know what several versions of the book cover look like. Most of these covers feature coral or ixtal, maybe with men in spacesuits, uh, but none that I've seen have any rim or anibis. A few are extremely good, 
and a few are a bit silly. <laughs> Coral has uh, lots of good representations on covers and on the internet. Uh, the silhouette of a dark cat, a panther... Dropped in my water bottle. Uh, <laughs> the silhouette of a dark cat, a panther with extra clawed paws on the ends of skinny shoulder tentacles, a cat with a mess of tiny tentacles all over its head and shoulders, an extremely close interpretation down to his odd ear tendrils, etc. The depictions range from intimidating, prowling panthers to silly, hulking monsters, <laughs> as if the Incredible Hulk and X-Men's Beast had a genetic mutant baby. Coral has also become popular in Japanese pop culture as a sort of mythological beast, as well as being referenced by other sci-fi authors over the years. The most notable appearances are in Dirty Pear and Final Fantasy. The animated series Dirty Pear, based on books and, and so on, is about two sexy agents of chaos who go on Charlie's Angels-style missions around the galaxy, sometimes with their sidekick, Coral, in tow. This version of Coral is really fun. He looks like a black panther with two shoulder tentacles and curly ears. The Final Fantasy video games also have a coral creature that looks like a spotted cat, somewhere between a cheetah and a panther, with, with dragon-like whiskers that flow back into appendages similar to a feather or a tentacle. These whiskers are uh, on their face, not on their shoulders. Ixtal, on the other hand, looks really different in every illustration I've seen. One version makes him look like a red dragon with four legs and four arms with long, skinny, goofy fingers. <laughs> Another is quite scary and uh, slightly impressionistic, the red creature holding many tiny humans in its hands. A Japanese cover I see pop up has uh, something that's like a cross between a monkey and a big cat that actually looks pretty similar to the illustration from Barlow's Guide. The main differences are its cat ears, bigger eyes with pupils, and the way its limbs are articulated. Though all four arms have those wire-like fingers, the top two arms seem a bit more like tentacles, while the lower arms have normal shoulders and elbows. It is my new mission in life to get my hands on a copy of this book. <laughs> it is called Uchu Kaiju Zone, or Alien Monster Zone, and is volume 5 of the SF Gaikoku Shirizu, or SF Foreign Series. Even searching in Japanese, the most detailed pictures of it I've found were posted by Twitter user Rokusen Suzumedai, which apparently means damselfish. <laughs> Their post includes a picture of the book open to a page with an illustration of coral and some of the text. In this drawing, coral is a vicious-looking spotted cat with massive claws, a long tail, and uh, hugely fluffy ears, and lots of thin tentacles flowing out of the scruff of its neck. I also want the Marvel Comics Worlds Unknown Volume 5 featuring Black Destroyer. Uh, then there are some illustrations and covers that make Ixtal look like a red spaceman with too many arms. <laughs> uh, also with kind of like the hands sometimes are making me think of uh, everything everywhere all at once with the hot dog fingers. Uh, <laughs> a particularly goofy one uh, gives him a big smile, primate abs, and glowing eyes. On a less picky note, the men aboard the Space Beagle are always illustrated well with classic science fiction spacesuits and future pistols. Uh, some covers have no monsters at all, just spacemen floating around, walking on a barren, pla uh, barren planet's surface, or standing beneath a round ship. Uh, something that's heavily emphasized throughout the text is that all the specialists on board the Space Beagle care deeply about their fields of study and work hard to expand their knowledge and think outside the box. This flexibility and ambition seems to stop abruptly when confronted with Nexialism, and they all think it is either useless or 
uh, a threat to their area of expertise. Grosvenor spends a lot of time thinking about what he knows about the people he encounters, how much experience they have, what he suspects they want people to think about them, and so on. He's constantly observing and adding information to what he knows, like any good Nexialist. Nexialism as a term uh, is coined by A.E. Van Vogt. It is the name he gave to a field of science and study that is focused on integrating all other fields uh, for a greater, broader understanding of the universe. Even essays describing what this field looks like refer back to the voyage of the space beagle as their introduction to the term without giving any origin of the word word nexial, uh, not to be confused with nexal, which has to do with nexum loan contracts. <laughs> Other appearances of the word seem to relate back to his usage of it, including an item called uh, nexial binding in the video game Demon's Souls, and a web application test automation platform that even utilizes the letters AE, though short for automation engineer. Since it seems like the alien creatures from Space Beagle have made up names, Coral, Rim, Ixtil, Anubis, it's very possible that Van Vogt made this word up too. Or I just haven't found it yet. <laughs> Something Grosvenor learns about more or less for the first time over the course of the story is the concept of a winter civilization and how this can predict how a society will function. This particular understanding of the flow of history features heavily in Space Beagle. Basically, it suggests that civilizations rise and fall, and depending on what time period an individual is born into can determine something about how they'll react to situations and emergencies. In Chapter 16, Corita, the archaeologist, summarizes it this way during a group discussion. Uh, you know the prevailing theory that life proceeds upward, whatever we mean by upward, by a series of cycles. Each cycle begins with a peasant who is rooted to his bit of soil. The peasant comes to market, and slowly the marketplace transforms into a town with ever less inward connection to the earth. Then we have cities and nations, finally the soulless world cities, and a devastating struggle for power, a series of frightful wars which sweep men to felidum, devast uh, and so to primitiveness, and on to a new peasanthood. The question is, is this creature in the peasant part of his particular cycle, or in the big city megalopolitan era? This passage is followed by Grosvenor musing about the phenomenon of a culture having its own psychological background, which I think sounds a lot like Carl Jung's concept of collective unconscious, a sort of group instinct shared among many. In Chapter 7, Grosvenor says he heard Corita say that human civilization is currently in a winter period. In Chapter 8, he explores this idea further, saying that it means human society is start starting to make mistakes that lead towards decay. Corita says, With the gradual accumulation of knowledge, even the simplest minds for the first time see through and consciously reject the claims of a minority to hereditary superiority, and the grim battle for equality is on. Again, keep in mind that this book was written in the first half of the 20th century, when a lot of countries were testing the waters with democracy. Japan, is partic in particular, received its constitution in 1947 and had to accept that the days of emperors had passed. Quote, In their resentment of the ruling minority and lust for power, men follow leaders as confused as themselves. Unquote. This almost inevitably leads to a new minority gaining power, using legal systems against the masses, and ending up in suppression and monopoly. That brings everything full circle, returning civilization to the beginning of the cycle with caste systems where one cannot rise above the station he's born into. 
Is it possible to disrupt the cycle? To keep democracy from falling apart into a dictatorship or monarchy? These ideas come from philosophers like Friedrich Nietzsche or Oswald Spengler that relate to the idea of a philosophical zombie, a human being who acts only on pre-programmed behavioral patterns. Shout out to David Ingalls for his article in the European Conservative that outlines the basic idea. In Space Beagle, Corita mostly references Spangler's notion of a felidum from his book The Decline of the West, published in the 1910s and 20s. A fella, spelled F-E-L-L-A-H, is an Egyptian peasant, specifically one living in the decaying ruins of Egypt. To avoid re reading dense philosophy, let's read a bit of the Wikipedia page. Spangler introduced his book as a Copernican overturning, a specific metaphor of societal collapse involving the rejection of the Eurocentric view of history, especially the division of history into the linear ancient medieval modern rubric. According to Spangler, the meaningful units for history are not epics, but whole cultures which evolve as organisms. He recognized that uh, he recognized at least eight high cultures: Babylonian, Egyptian, Chinese, Indian, Mesoamerican, uh, Mayan Aztec, classical, Greek-Roman, a.k.a. Apollonian, Arabian, a.k.a. Magian, and Western or European, a.k.a. Faustian. In his framework, the terms culture and civilization are given non-standard definitions, and cultures are described as having lifespans of about a thousand years of flourishing and a thousand years of decline. According to Spangler, the Western world was ending, and the final season, the winter of Faustian civilization, was being witnessed. In Spangler's depiction, Western man was a proud but tragic figure because, while he strives and creates, he secretly knows the actual goal will never be reached. So, the fact that Corita the historian believes that human society on board the Space Beagle is currently in its winter period indicates a sort of nihilism in regards to the politics around him. He doesn't really believe that Kent, Morton, Leith, or Grosvenor is capable of reversing the flow of a declining civilization. It's unclear whether he thinks humanity as a whole is in decline, or if ships like this one are simply at a disadvantage by starting out with their missions, uh, starting out on their missions with democracy already loaded. By the end, when even Kent, the stubborn, violent chemist, is showing up to Nexialist lectures, it seems like the key might be Nexialism itself, teaching everyone to have a top-down perspective on science as a whole. The rise and fall of civilization concept is explored with each of the aliens encountered during the story, with characters asking the archaeologist for an opinion to see how their enemy will react to things. Please look, note that this does not fully apply to a starving galaxy-sized swamp cloud. Coral, according to Corita, is part of a failing, dying civilization and therefore exists in the peasant stage of civilization, which will be followed with nothing since the planet is starving. Later chapters discussing a peasant's preoccupation with pre reproduction and race survival backs this up, since we know from Coral's inner thoughts that he did indeed become obsessed with the idea of prolonging the existence of his species. However powerful he might be on his own, he is too egotistical and short-sighted without the intellectual wealth of an empire behind him. He dies shortly after having an epiphany about bringing his fellows along for the ride. If I didn't make it clear en enough earlier, corals live off of a substance called id, ID, that seems to be the potassium found in the body that makes it possible for electrical impulses to send commands from one place to another, i.e. the life force of an animal. 
The corals suck it out of a living or recently living body through specialized suction cups in their mouths. This makes me wonder if the cats have teeth at all, since they're never described and all the deaths coral causes um, mention a smashed throat and other injuries, not bite wounds specifically. The use of the term id for this living potassium seems to come from the idea of the id, the ego, and the superego first described by Sigmund Freud in the 1920s. They are the building blocks of a personality. Or so he believed. The id represents our base instincts, the superego our highest moral feelings, and the ego is the compromise between the two, more or less. Considering that the electrical impulses that course through our bodies to create the basis of life and after that, instinct, Van Vogt's use of the word makes some sense. Since the corals seem to be mostly ruled by instinct, it also makes sense that the cat in question makes so many mistakes while trying to infiltrate the human spaceship. His superego wants to make rational decisions. His ego regulates the impulses of the id, and the id is screaming at him to immediately kill everything in sight. In the end, coral almost reaches a higher plane when he realizes that his race could be more than automatic cannibals who kill each other on sight as quickly as any other prey, with the potential to become a spacefaring people of conquerors. But this realization comes too late. His world is dying, and through many hunger and id-fueled blunders, he missed his chance to bring the necessary technology home. Returning to the question of civilization, the Rim are a society that sits in perpetual state of decline, Fela, never coming up with anything new until Grosvenor introduces the idea that their perception of reality is not true for every other living thing. This is most evident in their use of images of themselves during Parthenogenesis, which for them are comforting images of peace and safety, like parent and child, but for humans are nightmare visages of bodies melting together. The Rim react similarly to Grosvenor's mind being projected onto them, until he gets the frequency right and adjusts to their thought waves, even utilizing their version of happy parent and child to calm them. Aside from contact with a simple yet sentient race, what is gained from this interaction is Grosvenor's bolstered knowledge of hypnotism and increased sensitivity to telepathic signals. Unfortunately, several men die before the misunderstanding can be worked out, which took Grosvenor several hours to accomplish through rearranging his mental connection with the hive mind. In the end, the space beagle flies on, interested in their un unnamed end destination in the Andromeda galaxy more than primitive, peaceful bird planets. The Rim will continue on in their current state of peasant living, unless this brief encounter with humanity inspires them to seek the stars. What about Ixtal? The text mentions that he floated in space for countless eons, subsisting on starlight. An eon can either mean a super long, unclear period of time, or it can mean a billion years. Either way, it's clear he's been floating in the blackness of space for an unimaginable length of time. It kind of reminds me of the convicts from Planet Krypton in the first Superman movie who get blasted into space. Uh, he too is determined to be a creature... Uh, is determined to be a creature from a peasant stage of civilization, uh, more focused on self-preservation and reproduction than on big-picture actions and effective warfare. This results in disappointment, since by the time he realizes that his priorities should have been uh, killing off humans and seizing the ship, he is ill-equipped to do so, and down to just a couple eggs. Only the human's quick thinking in abandoning the ship and blasting it with energy prevents Ixtil from successfully reconfiguring his priorities, completing a weapon, and killing them all. 
It's such an advanced science that the text never even explains what it would do, though heat seems to be drawn into the weapon like a tiny black hole. In regards to how long Ixtal was in space, was it really billions of years ago before the birth of the universe? In chapter 20, Kelly the sociologist and Lester the astronomer discuss the possibility that his race dominated not this universe, but a previous one. I've heard versions of this idea before in the Doctor Who spin-off TV series, The Sarah Jane Adventures. In one episode, the characters are influenced by their astrological signs through a sort of magic and rhythm from a previous universe, making it impossible to fight off since that power does not adhere to the rules of this universe. The key to defeating their foe is a boy who was artificially grown and therefore has no true birthday within the astrological calendar. In Space Beagle, a similar theory is put forth. And as far as I can tell, it is based on the concept of eternal return or eternal recurrence. There are a lot of theories like this one that are similar or related to the Big Bang Theory, so let me break them down a little. Keep in mind that even the Wikipedia pages for these theories are, and concepts are written with extremely dense verbiage. I am not a, physio- a physicist and cannot do any better than a brief summary. Please also keep in mind that when we use the word theory in this context, we are not using it like we would in the common vernacular, i.e., I have a theory that such and such. Within the scientific method of observing the universe, uh, that would actually be a hypothesis. A theory is a well-established pattern with evidence to back it up, though edits are always being made. For example, the Big Bang Theory suggests that the universe expanded out of a single point of high mass and density and continues to expand and cool. This theory is constantly being re-examined, especially when it comes to science surrounding dark matter. That's a whole other thing that really makes you wonder about the secrets of the universe. An alternative to the Big Bang Theory is the steady-state model, though it's generally accepted not to be correct. This version says basically the opposite, that the universe has pretty much always existed exactly as it is, without expanding or aging. There's also the Big Bounce scenario, which suggests that the expansion of the universe reverses and collapses in on itself, resulting in patterns of crushing gravitation, Big Crunch, and expansion, Big Bang. Again, this is not considered correct. Then there's the eternal return concept that, according to Wikipedia, has its origins in Eastern religions and ancient philosophers like Pythagoras that fell out of style uh, with the onslaught of Christianity and that found popularity again with Nietzsche in the 1900s, not too long before Space Beagle was written. The idea is that the universe repeats itself over and over uh, in a very similar way. Van Vogt seemed to have combined... Uh, the big crunch scenario with the eternal return concept, resulting in a fictional scientific community that believes the universe collapses, explodes, and rebuilds over the course of billions of years. Somehow, Ixtil blew so far away from the actual explosion that he survived the rebirth of the universe in the depths of space, a near-immortal feeding off distant starlight, living only for the sake of the eggs he carries. This mirrors how Van Vogt writes about civilization's constant rise and fall and cycles of expansion and collapse. Something that's never really talked about is what expedition ship Space Beagle's mission is. (laughs) After the telepathic incident with the Rim bird people, there's some discussion about the fact that the ship has a long way to go, but there's no talk about what they actually plan to do when they reach the Andromeda galaxy. I can therefore only assume their goal is to fly around for a while and see what they find. The technology in this story is pretty amusing. 
I always struggle with whether to mention technology in these episodes, <laughs> but there is a fascinating mix of new and old when you read vintage science fiction because it was written at a time when the author knew about some types of technology, had guesses about others coming down the pipeline, and made up anything that they thought would exist hundreds of years in the future. Every author has their own way of handling this. For example, in the last episode we covered Superluminal, which is all about faster-than-light travel using dimension hopping. Space travel is pretty much normalized, and people have all sorts of communication implants in their heads, yet there are still people like Radu who are reliant on what are essentially payphones. There's no in-between like a cell phone. You either have implants or you use a thing built into the wall. Other stories I've read feature a lot of paperwork on actual paper in the future, even though you would think everything would be digital simply to save space in spaceships. I really noticed this while reading the Sector General series by James White. In Space Beagle, this manifests itself through things like the bulletin board or Grosvenor calling different departments on the phone. At the same time, there are some impressive pieces of technology like video phones and floor-to-ceiling TV screens. The most notable pieces of technology in Space Beagle, aside from Grosvenor's Nexialist hypnotizing education instruments and mind control contraptions, is the atomic engine and the anti-accelerator drive. I could also mention the vibrator guns, which seem to cause atoms to vibrate in the air and thus create blaster beams, but that's pretty much all I have to say about them. Clearly, we're talking about an extremely advanced civilization that is capable of producing particle, uh, portable atomic cannons. Anyway, in chapter 27, we get a full explanation for how the anti-acceleration drive works. The name makes it sound like the opposite of a typical light-speed jump drive from other science fiction, so it's interesting to dwell on. A lot of books don't actually explain how the jump drive works, simply accepting that the reader will be familiar with the concept of a ship that can make hyperspeed jumps to shorten trips across many light years. You see it in obscure titles like The Web of the Chosen, as well as big ones like Star Wars. Here is what the text says about Van Vogt's version. D-gravity rafts operated on the same principle as the anti-acceleration drive. The reaction that occurred in an object when inertia was overcome had been found on examination to be a molecular process, but it was not inherent in the structure of matter. An anti-acceleration field shifted electrons in their orbits slightly. This, in turn, created a molecular tension, resulting in a small, though all-embracing, rearrangement. Matter so altered acted as if it were immune to the normal effects of speeding up or slowing down. A ship proceeding on anti-acceleration could stop short in mid-flight, even if it had been traveling at millions of miles a second. Speaking of technology and people who use it, what do you think of Grosvenor the Nexialist as a person? The book frequently asks the question, is Grosvenor an unethical manipulator? <laughs> Several characters answer yes, because he uses his immense knowledge to stimulate literal and figurative mental pressure points that push people to do things. And although Grosvenor is willing to contemplate the question himself, he ultimately answers no, and continues because he feels that there is not just one ethical code for every situation. In chapter 27, he says, People think a thing ethical or unethical depending on the associations that come to their minds at the moment or while they're considering the problem in retrospect. That doesn't mean that no system of ethics has any validity. I personally subscribe to the principle that our ethical measuring rod should be that which benefits the greatest number, provided that it doesn't e include extermination or torture of, or denial of rights to, individuals who do not conform. Society has to learn to salvage the man who is ill or ignorant. 
He acknowledges that he can be held accountable at the end of the voyage, even if he seems like a dictator taking over a democracy at the present moment. Unlike a normal civilization, this group of men's association with each other has an end in sight if they survive every danger they come across. Importantly, Grosvenor's ambition is not to replace Director Morton or acting Director Kent. Rather, he wants to build little bridges where he can and blast apart harmful procedures where he must in order to keep the ship from falling into anarchical chaos. In the end, the solution to the winter civilization conundrum might be Nexialism. If a key part of a society's decline is the public's awareness of equality, then Nexialism might be the next step, showing individuals what it really means to be equal and to be true critical thinkers. At the end of the book, speaking to a room full of new students, he says this, The problems which Nexialism confronts are whole problems. Man has divided life and matter into separate compartments of knowledge and being. And, even though he sometimes uses words which indicate his awareness of that wholeness of nature, he continues to behave as if the one changing universe has many separately functioning parts. The techniques we will discuss tonight will show how this disparity between reality and man's behavior can be overcome. As I said, Grosvenor's dedication to being a teacher rather than a political leader is important, I think. It points to Van Vogt's motives in writing the character this way. This is not a peasant-to-king story. Grosvenor exists outside the hierarchy due to his greater awareness of interconnectedness across all disciplines, and only takes control when it becomes clear the lives of everyone on board, or everyone in the galaxy or universe, might be in danger. He is still human and reacts as anyone does, defending himself from attack, but he is the most effective strategist on board. Grosvenor chooses when to speak up, when to retreat to his workroom, and when to act in everyone's interest. I can even see in here a little bit of an allegory for real-life scenarios when intelligent yet stubborn people can't stand to have the old ways questioned. Examples that come to mind would be school programs, uh, school, uh, social programs, and corporate structures. I want to take a moment and talk about the female and gender minority presence within the Voyage of the Space Beagle. This book decidedly takes itself out of the conversation of feminism, I'd say, though not on purpose. It was simply written at a time when there generally were no women along for expeditions like this. Cooks, secretaries, and medics were men, like everyone else. Especially when referencing a ship that uh, Charles Darwin would have been on long ago. And in this case, those men are given drugs uh, that alleviate their need for sex and make them feel less lonely. No one ever mentions having a girlfriend or a wife back home. Just as Earth is barely talked about, women make zero appearances. They only come up once when Grosvenor sits with some young colleagues who want to talk about them. However, even though it's implied that the men talk about women in disparaging misogynistic ways to get through an all-male journey, those conversations are not actually described. Grosvenor and his better colleagues say nothing when prompted to participate, choosing another, more relevant subject like politics. Grosvenor only goes for talk of girls when he wants to change the subject away from politics, which he considers to be more or less private. The story is all about the adventure, not the ladies back home. They aren't off to war, they're simply off to new lands. While I'm at it, the alien's pronouns are he, it, and they. Though Ick still carries eggs, he thinks of himself as a he, like a seahorse. We get a lot of both his and Coral's inner monologues, thinking of themselves as capital I Ixtel and capital C Coral, then going back to all lowercase letters to talk about the species as a whole. Meanwhile, the Anubis is a living swamp gas, so it stays in it, and the Rim are a hive mind that will always be more they than he or she. 
Also, I, I'm not sure that they have gen, uh, genders when they parthenogenize. Van Vogt's innovation came instead from including a respectable Japanese character. Korita is an interesting addition to the story since the various parts of The Voyage of the Space Beagle were written between 1939 and 1950, at the height of Western dislike for Japanese people. It shows that Van Vogt was a forward-thinking man when it came to politics, aware that relationships between countries shift over centuries, and one day there would not be so much hostility towards this particular race of people. This seems to play into the rise and fall of civilization concepts that he injected into the book. On top of that, Korita himself is carefully written. He shows up frequently because archaeology and history are considered an important part of understanding alien minds. He is thoughtful and articulate. The choice to make him the historian seems like a bit of a joke on Van Vogt's part. Of all the characters, the one from a culture known for making some poor historical choices is the one most aware of all other cultures' pitfalls. It also makes it clear why he can take... Uh, why he can make frank observations like this about his own shipboard community. Korita is also tall, which is interesting considering the stereotypes of the time. And the story never mentions if he has an accent, so presumably he doesn't. Just as some characters are heavyset or blue-eyed, he is Japanese, and that is all. And with that, we are done. What do you think I should cover in the future? Would you like to see more works that were included in Barlow's Guides? I'd love to talk about Delusion's Master, The King of Elfland's Daughter, Wild Seed, Ice Rigger, Strange Relations, and so many others that I don't even have copies of right now. <laughs> Until next time, you can check out my Instagram to see what I might cover in the future. Don't forget to subscribe and comment with books you are never going to read, and click the bell notification on YouTube to get notified when I finally post the next episode. As always, care for the planet and it will care for you. Bye-bye, Earthlings!